This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, January the 11th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone or give us a shout and in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26. So as you've heard repeatedly, just by looking out your window, you know, it's a pretty messy morning out there. The road conditions will be suspect in many parts of the provinces of the province. Uh, Unsuspected power outages affecting many people also on the island in particular. So it's winter. Put on your winter driving behavior cap. All right, and this will bring on conversation. As you heard Brian Medora mention once again in the VOCM newscast, people will be clamoring and trying to understand why there's not, not such a thing as 24-7 snow clearing and ice management services. There was a pilot program run between 2008 and 2016, but it's come by the wayside, so you know. All right, for hockey fans here, the Growlers return to action tonight at the Mary Brown Center, taking on the Adirondack Thunder. They're the number one and two teams in the north, although Adirondack's got a 10-point lead on them. They are absolutely for real. They've met four times already this year. All four are in Adirondack. The Growlers won the first one in the shootout, lost the next three. They were tight games, and these two teams have been to overtime, I think 10 apiece this year, so it should be some pretty good action at the barn this evening and it's their last homestand before there's a break next week for the ECHL All-Star game uh, Growlers defenseman Johnny Tachanik is actually in that particular All-Star lineup alright there you go I want to give you a reminder about an event coming up tomorrow evening between 6 and 8 at the Paradise Double Ice Complex and it's a Tim Hortons trading card event and to raise awareness for the war amps and of course being hosted and organized by Sully Hogan and his family. Sully of course you know the story he uh, took a spill when having to skate at the Bannerman Park Loop someone skated over his pinky severed it at the knuckle so he's trying to raise funds and awareness for the war amps sounds like a fun time. Now people have been asking the family you know what about if I don't trade these hockey cards should I come? Absolutely open to all hands. So that's tomorrow evening, 6 to 8 at the Paradise Double Ice Complex. All right, a couple of notes for folks who were sporting-minded. All right. On this date, 1977... The Chicago Cubs trade outfielder Rick Monday to the Dodgers for Bill Buckner. Now, Expos fans will be haunted by the name Rick Monday. In the 1981 National League Championship Series, it was a best-of-five series to end the 81 National League season. It was the 13th NLCS in all. The, season, the series featured the first uh, half winners in the West, that would be the Los Angeles Dodgers, and the second half East Division champions, the Montreal Expos. The Dodgers won the series three games and two over the Expos thanks to a ninth-inning home run hit in Game 5 by Rick Monday in what has ever since been referred to as Blue Monday by Expo fans. The Dodgers actually went down to beat the Yankees to be the World Series champions in 1981. Blue Monday, I remember that. All right, and for football fans, end of an era. Bill Belichick, longtime head coach of the New England Patriots, 24 seasons in all, six Super Bowls. They're parting ways today, so that's an interesting story as well. All right, moving on to the more newsy issues. So if you're going to fill up today, you're going to see an increase in the price at the pumps. And of course, effective last July came into effect the federal government's clean fuel regulations. You know, all trying to talk about reducing the amount of pollution from cars and trucks. 
All right. So as opposed to put the onus on the refineries to reduce the emissions that their fuels that they sell to us will produce, no, we're paying it. So if you're going to fill up with uh, gasoline today, an increase of the clean fuel regulations, 3.74 cents per liter of gasoline and 4.17 cents per liter for diesel. The Premier and others have been pointing out the fact that the clean fuel regulations are not fair across the board. We may indeed see our, our pump users pay about three times more than our counterparts in Atlantic Canada. So clean fuel regulations come into play today. Uh, also on that front, when we talk about driving, I wonder how quickly we'll get the data from the provincial government regarding the pilot program for speed cameras in Paradise and Mount Pearl. I'm really curious to see how that worked out this year. And of course, no fines were levied. I simply got a letter in the mail saying you've been a bad boy or a bad girl. But we'll see the results of that. You want to take it on? Let's go. All right. This is a very difficult topic, but like many difficult topics, if we don't talk about them openly and honestly, then things are only going to get worse. And this is numbers coming from Canada's online tip line and the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. Okay. Last year, the reports of 2,300 reports of sextortion targeting children over the course of between September 2022 and 2023. 50 reports of sextortion per week. There was a lot of national focus given to this issue when there was a 12-year-old boy in Prince George killed himself last month. So we've been warning folks about it, but it seems to be getting dramatically worse. All right. Here's some of the numbers for content. Now, for starters, you know, we really should have these conversations at home. There's no textbook to parenting, but we can't be afraid of that conversation, as traumatic as it might be. And I think we should also try to craft some way to talk about it in school, because it's school-aged children that are being targeted. Here's some numbers for you. More than 284 people in Canada were charged with luring a child via computer in 2022. That's according to Stats Canada. In the decade between 2012 and 2022, the total number of people charged with luring a child online has more than doubled, from 128 people in 2012 to 284 in 2022. So adults have tried to lure on a child to get them to show them some provocative, some nude photographs or videos or whatever the case may be. Here's something else. And this comes from the Center for Child Protection, and they're the parent organization of CyberTip.ca. A report released last February said the tip line received 2013 reports of luring in 2022. That's an 815% increase from 2018. This number kind of surprised me. By and large... The victims of this sextortion, 91%, are males. So it often occurs on Instagram and on Snapchat. Usually when the males are the victims, the sex tor- the sex torters are demanding money. When it's girls, they're asking for more provocative photos, nudes, and, and uh, videos potentially. So I know that's a tricky conversation to have, but boy, oh boy, how important could it be? It might start off quite innocently. innocently. All of a sudden, you've got yourself in a spot where they're threatening to release the intimate photos that you've already shared. And boy, oh boy, it can end in the worst possible possible way when we talk about that fact that a a Prince George boy, 12 years of age, killed himself last month as a result of that. So I know that's a tricky piece of business, but we've got to talk about it. And on that front, when we talk about what happens in the school and warnings for some of the issues that are right there at our fingertips, you know, artificial intelligence. We've talked about it a little bit in the past uh, couple of weeks. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it a little bit more, speak to people who are much more knowledgeable on topics like that. But it's a conversation that's also required, I think, inside of school. All right. So finally, putting some teeth into the Residential Tenancies Act. You know, a couple of issues regarding rent. We had a call yesterday. A lady called to say that her mother, uh, paying rent in a personal care home, was given a 30-day notice telling her that her rent was going to increase by $1,200 per month. $1,200. So even in the so-called 
outside world, outside of private care, uh, personal care homes, I got to give my tenants 90 days notice. Inside that senior's residence, 30 days and $1,200 increase in rent unmanageable for the vast majority of everybody, mostly seniors. So I don't know how the province is going to respond to this. And of course, yes, carry costs for landlords have increased with interest rates and insurance and all the rest of it, but not to the tune of $1,200 a month. I mean, there's just no way. So I don't know where we go with that one, but something's got to give. And now for years, like back in 2018, they jacked up the fines for landlords and tenants who break the rules. And of course, nothing has really happened. People are willing to break the rules because they know there's not going to be a fine levied. The adjudicator who you present your case to doesn't have the ability under Section 51, which talks about fines, to put a fine on the table, which was increased up to $10,000 some years back. So... You know, the minister responsible of Service NL and digital government is Sarah Studley. She says everyone has the opportunity to take these issues to court. But when we already have a tribunal and an adjudicator that's in position, is it not possible that when the case is heard, a ruling is made, and a rule has been identified as being broken, can't we just deal with the fines right there and then? Because unless people are paying fines, there's simply no deterrent. Landlords and or tenants will do whatever they see fit, knowing that the worst that's going to happen is to tell that you've been bad. And no fine will be paid. So a lot of this came to focus when there was a newcomer to the country. He was simply bounced around for no cause out of his apartment. He won his case in front of the tribunal. And what happened? Nothing. So hopefully they're going to find a way to put some teeth into this. And I don't know why the table or the tribunal that you present to wouldn't be the entity that can bring forward a fine. You know, I know for the most part people believe that those types of issues and fines being levied should belong in a court. But when we're talking about the Residential Tenancies Act, maybe, just maybe, there's a better way to handle that. But it looks like they're going to have a look at it anyway. You want to take it on? Let's go. All right, let's go to the skies. When governments choose to hire quote-unquote experts outside of government and bring in consultants to look at various issues, including air ambulance, So, apparently, the experts have told them that the air ambulance should be located in Happy Valley Goose Bay and in St. John's, not Gander. You know, it's one thing to hide behind, I'll call it, the so-called experts, but St. John's would be the destination for the air ambulance. You know, not the starting point. So we'll be told that there's more healthcare professionals on the Avalon, consequently better equipped to staff the air ambulance. But the problem with that is that we've been doing it for such a long time again, or is it all of a sudden a staffing issue? We don't have staff out there. So there's going to be the potential for dispatchers, upwards of 10 government jobs lost in Gander. And when we're just being realistic about, you know, where you're going to get timely access to an air ambulance, and there's going to be further reliance on helicopters. Fair enough, that makes sense to me. But it makes zero sense that air ambulance shouldn't be staffed and stationed in Gander. It's the center of the province. You know, you talk about hub and spoke and getting to people who are in need as quick as possible. I just can't understand how anyone looking at a map can tell me that Gander is not the proper location for air ambulance services, like it has been for some 20 years. So that's a majorly concern that I just simply can't wrap my mind around. Anyway, if you want to take it on, let's go. Also, sticking with the skies, I, I was given a letter from the Newfoundland and Labrador water bomber pilots. 
Okay, we all know the fact that back in September 2018, we lost one of the uh, water bombers, struck a rock while trying to fill up. And now we have not replaced that water bomber. That's one of the issues. But this group has been without a contract since 2022. They say their working conditions have fallen significantly behind other promises and the private sector. They're low pay. Uh, we know there's a global shortage of pilots. And given the fact that people are understanding that their working conditions are poor and the rate of pay is also quite poor, they've got an absolute huge problem in trying to attract what is a highly skilled professional for the critical task of flying these essential aircraft. Now, there might not be a whole lot of attention or focus given to it because we're in the middle of winter, because April and May, when wildfire season kicks in again, we're going to know and learn the hard way that we might have ourselves a big problem. So let's see, they give me a number of pilots that, that uh, okay. So right now they have only eight pilots for, far, for four aircraft, far below the minimum complement of 18 pilots for five aircraft just a decade ago. So, there's an estimated 50 comparable aircraft nationwide. There are likely 300 to 400 active pilots undertaking these responsibilities, similar to those here in this province, representing less than 3% of the total pilot community in the country. So, the water bomber pilots are speaking out and reaching out to the provincial government to see what can be done. Now, we had a relatively, I'll call it mild, wildfire season in this province last year. Of, of course, the exact opposite in provinces like British Columbia. But the water bomber pilots, they need some help. There's the numbers one more time. Eight pilots pilots for four aircraft, far below the minimum complement of 18 pilots for five aircraft a decade ago. So that's a big one. And let's take it on. Okay. Uh, how are we doing out there this morning, David? Let's have a great show today. Okay. So we all know that the last number of years, and I guess forever and a day, there's been lots of stresses on our lives. And over the course of the pandemic, that's only been heightened, especially when we talk about financial concerns. And here's a survey and some of the results that we should talk about regarding uh, your financial situation and the toll it's taken on your mental health. Okay. The poll shows that residents of the Atlantic provinces are more likely than any other province to say that they regret the amount of debt they've taken on. 52%, an increase of two points from the last quarter. One quarter of Atlantic Canadians polled said that over the last year, they've had to take money for their savings, home equity, an RSP, or other means to not only pay debt, but maybe simply to meet day-to-day expenses. Meanwhile, Atlantic Canadians are also more likely than any other region of the country to say they have only made the minimum payment on their line of credit at 26%, 12-point increase from 2021. and we know, but a $1,000 balance on your credit card at 19% making the minimum payment is going to take you a couple of decades. So we understand those complications. Then they go on to talk about, you know, the increased anxiety that the debt load brings to bear and also the apparent potential for embarrassment. Consequently, maybe not reaching out to professionals to try to get your debt back in line, back to a manageable status. So I'm sure when we talk about mental health, there's a variety of contributing factors, but these, this is one of them, and you know it to be true. I mean, it could be the ruination of, of marriages and families and, of course, losing your car or your home and all these savings that you put, uh, put aside for a rainy day and or your retirement, now simply just trying to keep the wolf away from the door. Of course, it's going to have a, a big impact. All right, I had a call yesterday from Rod Pike, who's the chair of Crime Stoppers. And the topic of choice yesterday was contraband tobacco. You know, he was talking about the fact that, you know, I think he really uh, set up the call appropriately in saying, look, this is not trying to be lecturing folks who are, you know, taking the opportunity to cut costs, whether it be contraband tobacco or otherwise. I mean, everyone's looking for loopholes and opportunities to save. But he's just simply drawing a straight line between contraband tobacco, illegal cigarettes, and funding and fueling organized crime. 
So I thought he did a really great job of just painting the picture. Also goes on to say that uh, this province, Nova Scotia, BC and Ontario buy more illicit tobacco than any other province on a per capita basis. Unstamped tobacco is eight times more profitable in the underworld than cocaine. That's really quite a staggering number. So again, he wasn't saying you are bad and you're making the community less safe, just trying to draw the line. Maybe people will consider or reconsider how they deal with uh, contraband tobacco. I don't know, but I did tell you yesterday that right on the heels of that call, two emails that bounced in within 10 seconds of each other said, I'm gonna keep doing it because I'm looking out for number one. And take this for what it's worth, you know, an individual who is saving on that front is costing the rest of us enormously. So anyway, if you want to comment on what you heard from Mr. Pike and the whole issue regarding contraband tobacco, we can do it. So there's a lot I wanted to get to here this morning, but also brought up the issue that down in the state of Florida, the FDA has now said that Floridians can buy prescription drugs in Canada to save their uh, residents, citizens, $180 million a year in the first year. Mark Holland, who's the federal minister of health, has said that's not going to happen. We're not going to see drug shortages as a result of that issue, and rightfully so. It's one thing for the FDA or the state of Florida to say they'd like to do whatever in our country, but we can simply say no, and we should say no. We've seen repeated uh, drug shortages in the country over the last number of years. The price point is really quite uh, uh, something. Uh, drug prices in Canada are 40, 46% of those in the United States, so it makes it very attractive to try to do business here. But we've also had drug shortages of drugs uh, like diazepam, so under the brand name of Valium, the, of course used to treat anxiety, opioids like hydromorphone, and yes, the type 2 diabetes drug that is now a weight loss uh, drug as well, apparently, the off-label use of Ozempic. So the federal government really does owe it to Canadians that we cannot and should not see any potential drug shortages on any front because the drug's been gobbled up, being used and prescribed in the state of Florida. So good on Mark Holland, and hopefully he can stand by that because that would be the worst thing possible. Lots of reaction to the government's decision on transitional housing and leasing a hotel for the $221 million over the course of three years. There's still so many unknowns. Now, some of those costs don't include all the operations at that hotel, including the staffing, and we all know that even when the government tries to set up the collaborative care clinics, for instance, it simply can't be a matter of moving a staffer from here to there and pretending that we're getting anywhere ahead of the game. So how does the staffing issue going to work? And again, it doesn't cover all of the costs inside this particular operations. It doesn't cover the cost of food, which is three meals a day. I've heard a lot of negative reaction to this. I would like to be able to get some answers to all the looming questions that are out there, and the questions are real, and they're completely legitimate. Whether or not this is a good or bad thing, hard to say at this moment. But I'd also like to know more from government about just how much attention is going to be given, not just to a roof over your head, but legitimately trying to put people back in control of their own destiny, back in control of their own lives, on their own two feet. Some people have seriously complicated issues that might make it unlikely, but many with the proper supports and incentive, because it can't simply be, well, this is too easy. I'm just going to take advantage of this and just coast along and not try to deal with my addiction, not try to deal with anything that could put me back in better stead. There's really got to be some pragmatic approach to that particular issue inside this world of transition housing. And I guess the newsroom followed up with the province uh, uh, talked about the fact that, you know, they didn't buy the hotel like they did in the province of British Columbia, for instance. They say no consideration was given to buying the hotel, given ongoing maintenance concerns and potential other liabilities. But if you want to take that on, we can do it. And the very last one, and this is a story that just for some reason does not get enough attention. 
Today begins the two-day sentencing hearing for Cameron Ortiz. Cameron Ortiz, of course, a former RCMP intelligence officer, found guilty late last year selling secret information to police targets. He was found guilty on all six charges that he faced. So pretty serious stuff. It's the first test in the court of law for the Security of Information Act. You know, he was selling and leaking really specific information to some pretty bad people, notorious people, some of the biggest money launderers in the world. So the Crown is asking for a sentence of 20 years. Mr. Ortiz, after his arrest, had been in prison for some three years. He was granted bail early in 2022, but as soon as he was found guilty, he was brought right back into custody. So the, uh, the defense, time served. 20 years, says the Crown. Obviously, there's got to be a serious sentence associated with this guilty verdict on these six extremely serious charges. Anyway, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's have a great show today. When we come back, Bill Hines in the queue to kick us off. He wants to talk about Bay St. George. What about it? We'll find out. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back. Just a quick reminder for folks who would be interested in going to Engage NL, the website, of course, for public consultations. Today is the closing date, the deadline, to have your submission and your thoughts heard on amendments to the Wildlife Act, Endangered Species Act, and applicable regulations. So today is the day if you're someone who's interested in having your voice heard on that front. Okay, let's begin this morning on line number one. Good morning, Bill. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you doing? Very well. How about you? Oh, not too bad, considering the weather. Yeah, it's a bit dreary out there today. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, I called. Uh, uh, we, we, I've kind of started a small project. Myself and my young father started a sports recognition uh, project for Bay St. George. Okay. Uh, he was home in November, and he came out for a skate with us in, uh, with our old-timers team, I guess, to show us how old we are getting. But anyway... He uh, took a tour around the rink, and uh, he came back to me. He said, Dad, he said, uh, there's not much history of our sports of Bay St. George in and around the rink. And the rink is used private, you know, for a lot of tournaments and in the summer for whatever, showcases and whatever. So he, he kind of touched uh, uh, a spot in our heart, I guess, about of our area of our rich history of sports in Bay St. George be it baseball, hockey, soccer, uh, whatever. So uh, it took upon ourselves to uh, contact the town and the stadium, and everybody seems to be in agreement. And he, he said, uh, not we expanded it to the point that not just hockey to be shown around the rink, but also uh, other sports like uh, baseball. Baseball doesn't have a building or any such thing that they can showcase their athletes in. And uh, so we decided, well, let's expand it. Let's, let's invite all the sports in Bay St. George uh, who have members, and we have members in uh, Baseball Hall of Fame, Hockey Hall of Fame, Golf Hall of Fame, Soccer Hall of Fame, uh, Powerlifting Hall of Fame, Cross Country Skiing Hall of Fame. So he said, why don't we start something and uh, see where it goes? And this is our first foray into into this project so i thought i'd uh, touch base with you so that it would get out on the air to people of bay st george and uh, because we got people like Fonce jesso and lou drake from lords in the baseball hall of fame we got rick hocko and tom hocko in the broomball hall of fame we got george chalk and uh heather alexander from st george's in the hall of fame golf hall of fame 
Soccer Hall of Fame. You know, so this is our little project where you, uh, we kind of started on. Absolutely fantastic idea, and I'm glad you're doing it. So what's the play? So are you going to go to the individual sports and their governing bodies or the Hall of Fames to try to get some memorabilia and photographs, team or otherwise? So what, how are you going to populate this building? Yeah, that, that's the thing. It's like uh, we got to get the message out there, and I'm sure there's people have uh, memorabilia in their homes. I know, you know, friends of mine, and I got them in my place. Yep. And uh, I once we get it all set up, sort of thing, I'll have a, a kind of a general meeting with all the sports organizations and see who's on board and what they want to do and stuff like that. But as right now, it's just uh, it's in the beginning stages. But uh, the feedback has been tremendous with uh, with the business organizations in town, and even the Chamber of Commerce, uh, Bay St. George Chamber of Commerce, uh, asked me if I would like to speak at their luncheon. So, you know, it it's a it's a feel good project, and we we've lost too much of our our history. Uh, because uh, just recently, one of my friends said to me, he said, and because it's at the, uh, we're having it at the Steamville Dome, doesn't mean it has to be just hockey. Because he had his young fella at the rink, and he did everything to try and get his young fella to, to play hockey. No, no, no. So he said, you know, I said, what if he walked him around the rink, and he looked, and he said, oh, look, there's uh, Katarina Roxon. You know, she's a swimmer. Maybe I like to do swimming or something like that or golf or you know, whatever. But just to show the opportunities that, that lie ahead of the young, young, young people in our area. I mean, of course, my mind is racing now because this is, uh, hits me right in the fields. This is the stuff I love. So, yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, between uh, photos of teams or individuals, maybe if you can raise some money, you can shadow box things like jerseys and the like, maybe newspaper yeah. clippings. I mean, all the rest can be a real walk down memory lane. And I would imagine as you're waiting for the ice to be cleaned or in between periods or what have you, there'll be all backs to the, uh, backs to the rink as people are looking at the walls doing exactly, yeah, exactly. that. Yeah, I exactly, think it's brilliant. Exactly, Patty. Absolutely. Uh, like, uh, you know, a lot of people don't know. Oh, but Chris Pittman here was drafted by the Quebec Nordiques. There you go. Right? Yeah. A lot, a lot, and uh, we don't even have our herder banners hanging from the stadium. And we got two of them. You know? Oh, and, and like with Cal Dunville, Cal was uh, on an Allen Cup team. And like Jerry Bolin, he, he's in the Baseball and the Golf Hall of Fame in Newfoundland. You know, there's a lot of a lot of history uh, that people are just not aware of, and, and that's why we didn't want to just focus on hockey because okay, yeah, sure, that's a hockey, but and we wear the dome. You get a lot of foot traffic and a lot of people coming in from outside. We want to make it say when they leave the rink, they say, "Gosh, uh, Steamville's done real well with or Bay St. George." Let's let's put it this way: Bay St. George. Because all our athletes are from Bay St. George. We, we, we're not just from Steamwell. That's, that's one point I want to make as well. Okay, so make your pitch for individuals to uh, give you some of their old newspaper clippings and photos and jerseys and hats and whatever else you'd like. And maybe for the folks listening at SportNL this morning, if you can help organize through the governing bodies to try to make this uh, as beautiful as it really should be and probably will be. So all hands, or whether it be in Bay St. George and these governing bodies, listen to Bill Hines here. And if you think he can chip in and make this the project that we all hope it can be, then do what you can to help because it's going to take a lot of people to compile all of the stuff you're looking for because it's out there. Much of it is sitting in people's basements in a box or what have you, so let's get at it. 
Yeah, if if people in Bay St. George, and I'm talking Bay St. George, right from the mainland in Cape uh, Cape St. George, right to Steamville Crossing, St. George's, Steamville, Port of Port, uh, all those areas, people, if you have any paper clippings, pictures, memorabilia, anything like that, you can uh, forward it all to me. And if you don't want to let go of it, uh, photocopy it. And just put it in a frame for me, and we'll we'll make sure it gets on. And anybody that donates anything, we are going to list what is donated, and we're going to have a plaque put in the stadium as well as for the people that have donated uh, articles. So we're it's really a Bay St. George uh, project, and uh, it's for our kids to see what's what can happen because we've had people in uh, in Canadian competitions, Newfoundland competitions, international competitions. Uh, we, we had weightlifters that participated in the worlds. So you know, it's it's going to be a joint project, and we hope everybody comes on board with it. Sounds good to me, man. A pr- pretty great call to kick off the show here today. So let's hope that everyone who wants to play a role does and uh, does exactly that. And it would be one thing for the residents of the Bay St. George to see it when they go to the rink, but for visitors coming in for games from other parts of the province, they'll be fascinated by it as well. I would suggest. Yeah, so. th- that's exactly right, Patty. Because uh, there's times when we go to different rinks now, and we walk around and we look and we say, man, that's that's. Ex- that's unbelievable to see all photographs and stuff like that, right? So we want to leave a, a, an impression of the Bay St. George area and their athletes and the community spirit, you know, to keep the communities together and act as one to, to uh, complete our project. Good stuff. Do you want to give out a number or anything, Bill, this morning? Yeah, I can give out my number. And uh, people who have stuff, uh, they can contact me at uh, 649 Seven six nine three, and I'll surely be grateful with any any uh, contribution you can give. Good man. Good luck with this. Keep me in the loop, Bill. Let me know how it's going. Great. Thanks, Patty. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Great project there. Okay. Let's take a break. We'll go back. Gordon's in the queue to talk about moose out in Area Twenty Eight. Don't go away. Saturday morning. Join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number two. Good morning, Gordon. You're on the air. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Yeah. I, I, don't tell, I won't take up all your time, because i got to say what i got to say on my mind, I'll take up all your time. But I heard you talking there a couple of days ago about the move percentage. You said, like, every two years, how far it went down, like, say, from 60 or down to 55, like that down there. So I'm going to tell you the reason why the moose is going down. Okay. And I know, and I know about moose. The first moose I shot, uh, 64 years ago, I shot the first moose. And at that time, you go and buy a license for anybody. And you could shoot them with any kind of a gun, and I've shot them with every kind of a gun. I've shot them with all kinds of guns and made, I've shot moose with. And back then, you could say, you boy life with anybody, you go and shoot moose. And I've shot as many moose as anybody else. And I know how to move moose. But the problem with the moose is the hope that it's killing all the big bulls. And, you, and uh, a few years ago, when their license was coming out in the book, 
to tell you how many lighters the outfitters have in each area, like Black River area and stuff like that. But they, and, the, and the outfitters got the government to cut that out. The last four years, they don't even put in how many lighters they have. Because I know the outfitter that shot 26 bulls the year before last. Yikes. And they kills the biggest bulls, and then you, you, you can't go and see any cats. All you look see is cows. That's the biggest problem with moose, and not the coyotes or the bears. Well, add to that, when there was a reduction in moose licenses there uh, last year and the year before, there was no reduction to outfitter licenses, all for locals. Locals never had no license. They, they didn't see a reduction in any of the number of licenses they were able to get. Only locals saw a reduction in license numbers. The year before last? Yeah. I don't understand what you mean there. That they, had, they had license to outfitters. No, here, here's what I'm trying to say. Let's see if I can make it more clear. So... The total number of licenses that the province granted went down, but no, none of the outfitters saw a reduction in the number of licenses they had. Only people who were locals saw a cut in the number of licenses in various moose management areas. Do you understand my, what I'm saying now? I understand that now, yeah. Okay. But, I mean, every other year, they had the amounts. Say, like Black River area, outfitter, a couple of outfitters here in this area, they say, well, if they had 100 licenses, 120 licenses, they said there. But now, the last four or five years, they don't say that. Because they put a stop to that, and I and I know I know the guy that he was the head RCMP here in Clarenceville, and he retired from that, and then he took the head job there in Dalek with the wildlife, and two days before the season closed, with a knock come on his door and he opened the door and this was a outfitter and two Americans, and he said you had to call this number, they called that number and everyone was on the other end, and I'm not going to say to the government fella. He said, you changed that license from male only to heterosex. And he had to change that there. He never had no other choice. Now he's retired from the wall. We don't mind talking about it. Okay. So, no, that's the things that are going on. I don't know. And I, I saw it, not last year, not this year, but last year, I saw it in, in Area 28 with a helicopter dropped off two people at the end of a, a, a ticket of woods. And then they went up and dropped off another guy. And you know what they used to drive the moose in? What? Fireworks. They never went in and walked through the wood. They just set out the fireworks. You're not allowed to do that, are you? They're not allowed to do it, no. And they, and they, and they turn the moose with the, car, with the helicopters most of the time. Because then the moose comes out, they can go down close to them and turn the moose and go whatever way to get the man put off on the hill. That's what they're doing, and that's, that's the biggest problem with that. It sounds like it's certainly a contributing factor. Yeah, and then, and then a few years ago, the government come up with the shooting the coyotes and getting guns. And I fully like went and paid a thousand dollars for a gun, twenty-two, two fifty. So then last year they cut that out. Well, they've got that. Uh, they cut what? They cut that out. Sorry, Gordon. They cut what out? You're not allowed to use a twenty-two, two fifty now. Well, the moose is on. Oh, okay. And I paid a thousand dollars for the one I got there. And so when the moose is goes, you can use it again. So stuff like that. That's what they're doing. And you haven't got the notion thing is telling me about a, a moose that can't use a 22 250 because it can't kill a moose. You kill a moose with a, with a 22. I've shot them with 22s. And, and I've shot them with every gun for gun. A 308, 306, 270, whatever you want to name them. I, I've tried. I've shot moose. I'm shooting moose the last 64 years. So I know how to shoot a moose. Fair enough. Anything you'd like to add this morning, Gordon? Well, I can go on, on with that, but uh, I'll speak about another, speak about another thing now. Okay. Well, first, I'll finish that there. Well, I was going to say there. I can remember on the Labrador a few years ago with the caribou. I know the ridge something, they were almost all killed out. And they, were, oh, they went down and they charged so many. Oh, all these fellow went down, I know them personally. And he went down and he told me he took uh, 
a pickup, a 152 pickup, and a hour and a half, the Edwin News to carry her back and give her back to Buddy. He said, I wouldn't go back to no more. I quit before I go back. He went to do, do his charge, but you'll never hear a tire for the after because you're not going to be charged. And that's like this, what, what the hope fit us. They do what they like with the helicopters, and they're not going to be charged. And, and he tells the government what to do. The government not telling the hope fit us what to do. Yeah, no, and regarding Caribou and Labrador, we've had a, an issue with Quebec Inu uh, coming in and taking the caribou, and you're not allowed to hunt them, period. And yet that's happening, and there's no punishment, no arrest, no enforcement. So that's been a problem for quite a long time. Uh, Gordon, I appreciate making time for the show. Thanks for the call. Well, I'll have to call you back next week. I look forward to it. Okay, thanks. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Say good morning to the Executive Director of Foster Families in Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Kelly Hodder. Good morning, Kelly. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So there was a pretty heartwarming story that I read earlier this week about a foster family that had brought in five foster children and lo and behold, in working with the government, adopted all five on the same day. What do you make of that? Uh, that was an incredible story. Um, I'm familiar with the family out in CBS who... Uh, was lucky enough to have do that adoption. They are fantastic foster parents. And, you know, often, not, well, every, you know, we do see sometimes that they, while they may have gotten into it for fostering, sometimes adoption is the outcome. And so for these children and that family, that was absolutely beautiful. Absolutely. Uh, Dave and Daphne, I can't remember their last name now off the top of my head. The Rendles. The Rendles. Uh, yeah. There you go. So it's a great story. But how common is it for a family that brings in a foster child to actually follow through with an adoption? Um, well, we do hear about it fairly regularly. Of course, you know, when someone contacts us here at Foster Families NL interested in fostering, uh, we would always say, you know, don't get into fostering with the intent to adopt because ultimately the majority of children who come into the foster care system do eventually end up being reunited with their biological families, which is always the goal. Uh, however, there are situations where um, you know, the courts determine that, you know, the parents' rights are terminated. And if the children have been in that foster home for an extended period of time, often the termination is made by the social workers that it is in their best interest to stay with the foster family and to be adopted. Um, so we do hear those stories, you know, every now and then. Um, they're absolutely beautiful. You know, anytime we can see uh, stability, permanency for these children, where they're in a placement and they don't have any more disruption, um, you know, that's absolutely the the ultimate outcome. Now, it might not be absolutely your bellywick, but you have indeed worked on adoptions. How arduous or time-consuming is the process? Because I hear people complain about that, but I admit freely I don't know uh, very much about the adoption process in the province. Can you help us understand or paint us a picture? It can be a very lengthy process. Um, that's obviously not the focus of our work here. However, in my previous work with the department, um, I did have some involvement in that, and I can tell you that there is a substantial amount of paperwork. Um, there is court work involved. Um, you know, of course, the we want to make sure that people who are adopting are, you know, per- qualified and have are the most appropriate people to be taking these children permanently. So there is a lot of work. Um, there's certainly a lot of work placed on social workers in that regard. Um, and they do so much good work behind the scenes that we often don't see. Um, but it, it's time-consuming. There's no doubt about it. We do hear from um, people who contact us here at the office 
who are in the process of adopting the children they have in foster care with them. And, you know, it can take months, and we've heard that it can take years in some situations. Um, It's unfortunate. Uh, You know, ultimately, we want to see permanency happen for these children as quickly as possible. But with uh, courts and paperwork, there's a lot of legalities involved. It it can take a while. When you say the goal is to uh, eventually see the child be reunited with his own biological family, does that stand in the way of some potential adoptions as well? Well, the rights of birth parents certainly have to be protected first and foremost, um, and that lies with the court system uh, to ensure that if a parent's rights are going to be terminated, that they've been given every opportunity to prove or not prove that they're able to parent their children. So that can take a while for that determination to be made. Um, that in itself can take you know, months into years for a parent's rights to be terminated because Rightfully so. It is their children. They should be given every right to demonstrate that they can, you know, safely care for their kids. Um, Every situation is unique. Those decisions, of course, lie with uh, the judges and with the social workers who are making their assessments. Um, But ultimately, once it's been determined that those parents, you know, can no longer safely care for their children, we want to see permanency for these kids as quickly as possible. How different would the vetting be for a foster family versus a potential adoptive family? Um, The vetting is very similar. Um, A foster parent, someone who's applying to be a foster parent or applying to be an adoptive parent, they would all go through the same assessment um, and vetting process. Uh, So if you want to adopt in this province or you want to foster in this province, you would have to complete the assessment program called PRIDE. Um, So this is so that the Department of Children, Seniors, and Social Development can assess um, adoptive and foster parents to ensure that they have the proper competencies to be able to uh, parent children. So, you know, the background check, the child protection checks, the police checks, all those things would be similar. They would all have to be done. The difference is if you're already a foster family, you would already have a lot of these assessment pieces done once you've gotten to the point where it's been decided that you're going to adopt. So, you know, the role may look a little bit different, but the assessment process is actually much the same. Very well. Okay, so let's talk about what absolutely you are in control of is foster families and placing children in foster homes. You know, we hear every now and then that there's a real distinct need for more foster families. Help us understand exactly what the demand looks like and what you need. Uh, So right now, uh, we get our statistics from the Department of CSSD. Um, These statistics are about six months old now. Right now, there are 915 children in the care and custody of CSSD, and we have 585 foster homes. So we don't have numbers about how many kids are actually waiting for a foster home right now. That's very difficult to determine. However, what we do know is that we have children who may come into care, say they come into care on a Friday evening, there's no foster home available, they could end up in a staff group home arrangement, which is will keep them safe, but certainly not ideal. We know that children do best when they're in a family-based environment. And the other thing that we see is that kids who come into care and there's no foster home available in their area, so they then have to be removed from their community, their school, their friends, their pets, all of their connections and have to be placed in a foster home, which could be hundreds of kilometers away. So that just adds another layer of loss and trauma to what that child's already experienced. So ultimately, we would like to see more homes in every area, in every community, so that if a child does unfortunately have to come into care, they can at least stay 
in their familiar area, in their home, in their community. Let's talk about compatibility. And I mean, I don't want to reduce foster children and or families to chattel. I mean, they're human beings. Mm-hmm. But what happens if it's not a good fit, whether it be for the foster child with the uh, foster family that they've been placed with or vice versa? Right. Well, that's the other thing, Patty, is if we had more foster homes there could probably be a better job done of matching children to homes. So if a foster home has just opened and they've identified that they you know, are only comfortable with taking uh, children under five, say, um, but we have a teenager come into care and the only home available is this new home that have identified that they would prefer to just have babies and toddlers, but they accept that teenager. It might not be the best fit. They've already said, you know what, we think we would do best with little ones, but we want to we make sure we have a roof over this teenager's head. Um, it could create issues. It could create a place of breakdown. It could result in that youth having to be moved again. So we would love to have a situation where we're able to match every child or youth to that perfect foster home. Right now, the department is not able to do that just because there is such a shortage. Um, and it is very important to have a good fit. Um, the research shows that um, you know, every move, every time there's a disruption in a child's placement, um, that impacts the overall outcomes for that child. Um, so ultimately, we want to see minimal amount of disruption, uh, best fit whenever possible. And when that child gets placed in a foster home, that they can stay there until you know, it's determined that that child can return home. Uh, let's talk, and again, we're talking about human beings and care and love and a safe place for foster children. Yep. What about on the financial compensation side? How does that work? Yes, yeah, so foster parents are compensated um, to meet the needs of the children that are placed. So every month, every, uh, the payments are biweekly. It depends on the age of the child that they're placed with, and it also depends on what region of the province you live in. Um, but essentially, foster parents are given funding to meet the needs for shelter, food, clothes, um, local transportation in the community to appointments to school, um, incidentals such as, you know, haircuts, birthday gifts, birthday parties, all those sorts of things. So the department ensures that uh, when you accept the child into your home to foster them, um, the expectation is not that you're supposed to be using your own money uh, to meet those needs. The government wants to make sure that they take care of that. Uh, so I wouldn't want finances to be a barrier for someone to come forward um, who may be interested in fostering because those things are looked after, as well as child care. If you have a child, a baby, toddler who's in daycare, uh, the department also covers the costs of the child care expenses. Uh, anything, anything else you'd like to add this morning, Kelly, before we say goodbye? Yeah, so we're going to be holding a virtual information session for anyone who may be interested in fostering or getting more information, and we're going to be doing that on January 18th at 7 p.m., um, and anyone can join throughout the province. It's all virtual through Zoom. So if they want to get in touch with us here at Foster Families NL, um, they can give us a call or check out our website, and we'll give them the details on how they can uh, join that call. And our number here is 754-0213. And if they go on Facebook or just go to Google and put in Foster Families NL, they'll find us that way. I appreciate you making time for the show this morning, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Kelly Hodder, the Executive Director at the Foster Families Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Barbara. You're on the air. How are you today, Patty? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Not too bad. I'm just wondering, uh, did you hear anything about the carbon rebate checks coming out? Yeah, they come out on the 15th of this month. Uh, they come out on the 15th of the different quarterly months that they're due, yeah. All right, then I thought I heard someone saying they're coming out on a Monday, Tuesday. 
that's the 15th, isn't it? Uh, yes. Tuesday. Oh, no, right. Monday's the 15th. Oh, Monday. And if you get it in the bank, would you get it on a Saturday? No. If the 15th falls on a Saturday, you get it the next business day. Right then. Yep. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Patty. You're welcome. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, you know, that was the implication of that clean fuel regulations and the spike we see in gasoline, 3.74 cents today, as per those regulations that came to pass on the pa- uh, past uh, July the 1st. And then on diesel, is 4.17 cent increase. And in the amount of money people can expect uh, this January... It's going to change in April. People continually try to tell me it's not going to change, but when we've seen the carbon price uh, carve out for home heating fuels, the feds are pretty clear in saying there is a change coming very likely in uh, uh, April this year. So anyway, let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Otto. You're on the air. Hello. Hey, how are you, buddy? Couldn't be better. How about you? Oh, number one, bud. Good. Talking about the wall life. Okay. I was an old trapper at one time. 50 years of experience. I was talking to a guy, he was into a hunting lodge there on Deep Bite Pond there, in the Clarenwell there, uh, Dean Crocker's Lodge, and he, he used to give a hunting course, hey. He told me he'd seen 12 links together at one time. And that's a lot of links, eh? It sounds like it. Do they usually uh, travel in big packs like that? I don't know, but uh, that's for the rear, right? You don't see a link too often, eh? Uh, now, I was out with another guy. He looked out his window and saw one walking up his driveway. Now, a link to the wife, I read it in a Trappist magazine from Ontario. It takes 250 rabbits a year for a link to survive on you got to have that money to survive, right? And what do you think is happening as a result of that? Yeah. You got all the rabbits cleaned up. All the young rabbits. No young rabbits, eh? There's a lot of animals, a lot of coyotes, a lot of fox, a lot of lynx, eh? A lot of mink. And no trappers. They're dying off, eh? And the young people are not going at it because there's a bit of work involved, eh? <laughs> Like, like Walter Brennan used to say, no brag, but fact. <laughs> what did he say? He said, uh, no brag, but fact. Okay. Yeah, and, you know, as a result, whether it be with the reduction in the numbers of rabbits and or whatever prey they would be going for, and, of course, the way we've treated their habitat, more and more often now we're seeing coyote, fox, lynx, much closer to where people live as opposed to years past. It was really remote to see an animal such as that. Everything's getting built up now, eh? Absolutely. They're losing the raptor, right? You take Aaron Clarable. It's unreal. Yeah. A lot of links, boys. That's too many. Uh, I mean, they, they got to have something to eat. Eh? They're going to attack kids. They're going to attack dogs, the kittens. They got to have something to eat, right? Of course. We had a call uh, maybe early this week, late last week, where a coyote actually went after a lady. Unreal. Yeah. Well, like you said, they're starving. There's no rabbit free. They got all cleaned up. You take one link and over 250 rabbits to survive a year, hey. I mean, that's a lot of links. And like you say, you, you don't see a link walking on your driveway every day, hey. 
No, absolutely not. I've only ever seen the links in this province once, and it was one. Well, I, like I said, I, I've been in the woods night and I'm much as some for the daytime. <laughs> I come off work and get myself a hid for the bush, probably one or two o'clock to back. Under crap long name. Yeah, fair enough. So you're but not had, at it anymore. I had six kids and a wife and low money, so you had to make up. Right now, the Germans got the fur trade ban, are they? Well, uh, there's serious fur restrictions in many parts of the world. Yes, like up in the States, you're caught with a jacket down there, take it off, you're, you're caught with a purse, uh, a steel skin purse, eh? They take it. You can't get yes. into the country with it, yeah. Yeah. Now, did you know a fair amount of crap, eh? It's unreal. What's going on? Look, Germany wants our energy in LA. They seem to. Yeah. Like $12 billion worth of energy. Canada should tell them to take a hug. Open the fur trade. Hey. Well, it was part of the discussions. Like, when the Canada-EU summit was here in the city of St. John's, that conversation was part of it. Well, it was initiated by members of the media. And you're right. We do a lot of trade with the European Union, and they have some pretty, I will say, curious and inexplicable restrictions on trade, especially when we talk about seal products. So it's arbitrary and makes very little sense. I'll give you the last word, Otto, before i got to go to the news. That's seal. That's the I know the wife had open heart surgery available for the name. And on, on a list to put the equal steel, moose, rabbits. No fat. You boil the fat out of it, and it's good. I really appreciate the rabbit. You're doing the great job. I appreciate the time, Otto. Thanks for that. Bye. Okay, bye. Here we go. Otto, lack of rabbits. I don't know what we're looking at for the rabbit count out there. I do really appreciate my buddy Frank, who gives me a brace of rabbits every now and then. All right, let's take a break for the news. Uh, when we come back, we're speaking with you. Topic, you know it. It's up to you. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the program. Well, as you know, my very favorite uh, email in particular is when I'm asked, why are you talking about this? Why aren't you talking about that? Look, uh, again, just a friendly reminder, uh, we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Now, we did have a lady that was concerned. She's, you know, she apparently uh, suffers from extreme anxiety and animals are her weakness. And yes, there are many calls that come into the show regarding hunting for moose and trapping rabbits and what have you. And uh, hopefully, like for this lady, she says it really sets her off or, or triggers her, I, I think is the word people that, that people use. So we apologize for that. But of course, the nature of the show really does deal with issues like that sometimes. So uh, if that's something that gets to you, then we apologize in advance. But, you know, the callers, we'll, we'll talk about whatever the callers want to talk about, including one email during the newscast that said, how come you haven't mentioned the fact that the government's uh, looking at selling off their oil assets? But of course, we have at least twice this week since the news broke. It was always going to be the case, I would think. You know, when it was a recommendation in Moya Green's report, the Premier's economic recovery team, and all the recommendations therein, how many have been acted on? Very few, I would suggest. And of course, then when they went to hire Rothschild and co. to have a very specific look at the potential value of these assets, and of course, what we're talking about here is that we have an asset or an equity stake in three of the offshore producing fields, a 4.9% equity position in Hebron, 87 equity position in the Hibernia South Extension, 5% stake in the White Rose Extension Project, and of course you've got the Assets and Exploration Teams, IP, that's held with Oilco, of course the province's oil and gas company. 
So the government is quick to say that they're simply looking to see what the market looks like and what the potential value may be. Not saying they have committed to actually selling off the assets. It's been a recommendation from a variety of areas because when we're talking about the fact that those equity positions brought in somewhere in the neighborhood of $200 million last year, I saw a recent valuation, but I can't imagine it's accurate, about $700 million worth of value. The government still maintains the potential for an equity stake in Beta Nord, so it's sort of a compare and contrast. If you're potentially selling off assets in the other three fields, but continue to look at potentially an equity stake in Beta Nord, I'm not sure how you square that particular circle. So inside of that Rothschild report, apparently there are state secrets. You know, we're unable to get a look at it. We had a full release, unredacted, of the Moya Green report, the, what they called, unfortunately, titled The Great Reset. So we had a look at that in detail. And we had Moya Green on this program to discuss the various issues that were broached by her and the team that was struck to look at the economic future of the province. The Premier, Premier Fury, said that this absolutely would be a blueprint, a roadmap for economic viability and prosperity. And yet we've seen very little action on it. Moya Green, of course, has a track record of privatization. Look no further than how she handled the Royal Mail in England. So it seems to, well, it stands to reason that that was going to be the eventual outcome of the work that she conducted. And if it's the real blueprint for the fiscal future of the province, it's a wonder that we haven't seen more action on the issues that we're talking about, privatization in particular. Now, people will have potential problems with privatizing government services. Certainly, uh, unions representing people working for the government have a distinct problem with it. So whether it be the oil assets, and the big one that I think draws a lot of confusion and consternation will be selling off the assets of the Newfoundland and Labrador Liquor Corporation. That one, of course, is confusing for the obvious reason. You know, it's a real revenue generator for the provincial government. I think the number last year was somewhere, what was it, $212 million flowing from the NLC to the provincial government coffers. But remember, we're not even exactly sure what we're talking about with selling off the assets. You know, whether it be storefronts and whether it be the distribution system, and even if they do sell off assets at the NLC, there's still an excise tax on, uh, on alcohol, so there will absolutely still be money flowing from the sale of alcohol. And then, of course, there will be taxes paid by people who are working inside these, I guess would be new, privately owned and operated uh, liquor outlets. There's already a couple of them in place, some of the Liquor Express outlets, for instance. So that's one of those real tricky ones. Some of the more easy ones, and government's gone out to the markets to see who might want to take over operations at Bull Arm. Then there's a long bit of an RFP in place to see who would like to take over year-round operations at Marble Mountain, no takers, right? Um, that, because, of course, the RFP also included that there would be no government subsidy coming to whoever's going to take over the hill. So if they're unable to make a business model work without about a million-dollar subsidy from the province, it's hard to imagine anyone's got any bigger, brighter ideas. And to the credit for the folks who are operating Marble, they are trying to do more to expand to more of a year-round offering, you know, whether it be for mountain biking or whatever the case may be. So it looks to me like they're trying to make that effort to improve the revenue side at Marble Mountain, then add to it, you know, some of the summer work they're doing. And now, lo and behold, they don't have any snow. So any hope of opening this month seems to be lost. You know, they need consecutive cold days to make man-made snow. They need a real dump period. So now it's likely going to be February before anyone's going to get a chance to get on the skis or the snowboard and take advantage of what is a really fun time and a really good hill being Marble Mountain, probably the very best in Atlantic Canada. So, yes, we have talked about the fact that the province is looking at the potential for selling the oil assets. On that front, PC leader Tony Wakeham says that he fears that it's the province of one step forward to try to get out of the oil business period. And maybe this is, you know, 
holding the government's feet to the fire. Maybe it's opposition because of a critically important role. But the provincial government, you know, even when it came to Bay to North, were pretty bullish on it. So I don't know how you jibe that particular thought that the province is looking to abandon oil because for many people, it looks like the province under this iteration of government is as reliant on oil and as bullish on oil and as uh, optimistic with the potential for oil fields to be discovered and producing here in the province. So I don't really know if that's any real particular concern out there at this moment in time. And then, of course, on the federal front, the thought when you talk about climate change, you talk about carbon tax, is that the feds are trying to get out of the oil business as quick as possible. Stephen Gibo, after the green light was given to the Beta North project, did say it was going to be much more difficult in the future to see oil production uh, proposals given the said green light and released from environmental assessment. When you talk about natural resources, you know, if we're going to see transition, and it's not up to me and it's not up to you, there's going to be the appetite for different countries around the world because we're an exporter of oil. If there's going to be transition fuels, say, for instance, natural gas, of which we are sitting on a wealth of it here and right across the country. You know, people say, you know, use the political sloganeering of uh, unleash or unlock the potential. There is appetite for the product. That is absolutely for sure. And then add into transitional fuels like this hydrogen play. I saw a story in the uh, Telegram this morning. There were folks out there who have organized some opposition to the project, basically based on environmental concerns. They feel like they've been forgotten. They feel like their issue and their voices have been dismissed. Certainly welcome to bring it up on this program. We spoke with a gentleman named Robert Loader just yesterday, and he's down on the Buren Peninsula talking about the concerns that they would have, the concept of social license, and yes, some issues that uh, are hanging over the head of some wind operations here in the country and around the world. You know, we did mention the concerns people have with the lack of the ability to recycle a wind turbine because it does, it is kind of... You know, outside the definition of green, because at the end of life, whether it be 25 or 30 years, we're burying the wind turbines. Companies are working towards trying to find a way to shred the fiberglass and produce other products, whether it be hard plastics and or cement and uh, binding products. So it looks like people are trying to attend to that because it's hardly green if we're just simply going to bury these massive turbines in a landfill. And then you talk about just the access to the grid. This is the big one for the final investment decision for these proponents. The federal tax credit is extremely lucrative, up to to the tune of billions of dollars potentially, if you're able to hit the regulations and fit inside the definition of green. And it's going to be different in different provinces. In this province, if they integrate with our grid, access to what is about 80% of renewables inside the energy portfolio here, versus in the province of Nova Scotia, for instance, we're still, at this day and age, 2024, uh, 51% reliance on coal or coal-fired generation electricity. So that's hardly green. So there's going to be a lot left to be understood on that front. We've seen the proponents come very aggressively, and they've got big plans, billions of dollars and thousands of jobs, and you know the uh, royalties that would flow, whether it be for water and access to uh, the wind and the ports and what have you. But if you're using at certain segments of the season over the year, coal-fired generation, there's nothing green about that. I mean, that's the furthest thing from green for any energy uh, in the world, certainly here in this country. So there's a lot left to be understood about those regulations. If they follow suit with the Americans, who have been very strict on defining green and access to the uh, very lucrative, once again, tax credits inside their inflation reduction plan, same thing here. The range is between 15% and 40%. You know, John Risley will say that unless we have very strict regulations, it will kind of ruin the proposal as it stands at this moment in time. There will be countries that will shop around for the greenest of the green 
green hydrogen. So anyway, that and whatever you want to talk about right after the break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Doc. You're on the air. Teddy. Yes, sir. How are you? Doing okay. How are you doing? Pretty good, boy. Pretty good. I hope you had a good Christmas and a good New Year. The same to you. I had a nice, quiet Christmas and New Year. Just what I needed. Yeah. A restful Christmas with family and friends. That's what it's all about. 100%. Uh, Paddy, I, I got a bunch of other topics I'd like to talk to you about, but I'm going to limit it this morning to two, because I know in the interest of time. And the uh, first one I want to tackle is uh, Churchill Falls in 2041. Okay. And I dare say Premier Legault today, if he was listening to Open Line, or had his aides listening to Open Line on Wednesday, you had a chat with Dennis Brown, and that came into the play. Dennis is a good friend of mine. We agree on things, and we disagree on things. And I dare say, if he was listening, he went away with a chortle, saying, probably saying to his advisors, boys, we got them now. They want to compromise. Let's go. Who wants to compromise, I mean, sir? What? Uh, who wants to compromise? I, I, you were talking with Dennis Brown, my good friend Dennis. Yes. And on um, 2041. Yeah. And the renegotiation. And Dennis uh, gave his opinion. And, and Dennis and I have been good friends for many, many years and agreed and disagreed on things. And Je Dennis indicated that we need to go in on a compromising note. And we shouldn't go in there and negotiate with any any expectations of coming out with anything great. And I'm saying to myself... That's not necessarily oh, what he said, though. Well, it is. That's a paraphrase. He did say we should be compromising. And he did indicate we shouldn't have any great expectations. You know, we shouldn't look for excessive things, basically. I just forget the actual word, words he used for that second part, but that was the tone of it, and I'm saying to myself, but they're laughing in Quebec now, I mean, look, we in Newfoundland and Labrador, I have been waiting since the mid-60s for 2041. Now, I'm not going to see 2041, but my grandchildren will, and I've been talking to them about the importance of 2041 for Newfoundland, for Newfoundland's psyche, for our psychology, and our, our financial condition going into the future. Well, what do you think 2041 and means? 2041 is the renegotiating of the contract. Yeah, but where, where do you see the massive economic uptick as when 2041 arrives? Like, what do you think actually what happens? I, what, I, what, what I see, my approach, if I was the premier at the time, my approach would be right now we're into negotiations, we're not in a compromising mood, we have been mistreated. We have been uh, paid no attention to in any attempts to reconcile what happened way back in 1966. Now, like any union, if you want, we're into a process of renegotiating our contract. And we need to go in and talk to Quebec in, with a hard-nosed approach. And we need to say... We, we need to base what we want on the prices of electricity, and maybe the province has developed a package like that, I'm not sure, on the price of electricity as it is in 2041 per kilowatt hours on the market. That should be part of it. Dennis said that. I agree. 
there may be other things the province that I'm not aware of would like to see into that package. The other second thing, though, that I would really like to see into that package is an element of reconciliation. Now, reconciliation is a big word today, and it's meant to readdress adjustments that have taken place in the past to different groups of people and different entities who have been treated inequitably, inequitably unfairly, and now require some form of reconciliation. We need financial recognition for the billions of dollars that, that um, we have lost over that period of time. Premier Legault, who probably is laughing today about the word compromise, because they won't compromise, I guarantee you that. Premier Legault is already on the record, really, as, as recognizing that what happened in 2041 was inequitable. What happened in 1969? Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, 1969. But they, they've indicated in no way in the past, ever since that point, any attempt by Newfoundland Labrador to readdress that situation has been treated with disdain. And, and so we are where we are today. And we now have a chance, after all that time, to come up with a package that. One based, is based on fiscal reality, financial reality, and two, based on a recognition and a reconciliation for the damage that was done to this province financially and psychologically since 1969. Sure. We don't really know exactly what's being negotiated, but I don't think what Dennis Brown says on this show is going to have much of an impact on negotiations that are behind closed doors. I really don't, to be honest with you. No, so, and, and nor, nor what, what I'm saying is probably not going to have much of an impact. But, you know, when, th- when messages like that get out, and I'm being kind of facetious, yeah, I, Premier Legault probably doesn't know who Dennis is or Dennis O'Keefe is. The two Dennises, but in the meantime, I just I think I echo what a lot of people in this, this province are saying and feeling. One, they want a just package. Two, maybe this is a message to the province. They want reconciliation. Three, they want to have a say in the final package. No negotiating in in public. I agree. Uh, you get a package. You bring it to the House of Assembly. Uh, before then, you have a referendum and pass it before the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, and if the people agree with it, then you put it into law. But you don't do it as formus. Okay, a couple of things. So I would imagine, for sure, there's looking at looking for redress, you can call it reparations or reconciliation or whatever, but certainly looking at what's happened between 69 and today, it's got to be part of the conversation, of course it does. Now, on that front, we've gone to court, I think we have seven straight losses in court, so I don't know how appetizing it would be for Legault, for his political future, to do much on the redress front. I think they're probably going to see a bigger move about how it's going to look for the next 17 years, or the next 16 years. I think that's where the, a lot of the folks will be for more monies coming to the 
this province. Hydro-Quebec has been buying power at the Upper Churchill for 0.2 cents per kilowatt hour since 1969. Mm-hmm. They've made about $30 billion off it. We've made about three. So the next 16, 17 years is going to be, I would imagine, probably the key focus area because that would, you know, you can split that however, however you like. You know, money's coming the door is money coming in the door, whether it be uh, based on recognition of 1970 or on 2025. I don't think it matters too much to the people of the province. We just want more. We want to win financially and politically here, I would think. Right. In addition, I doubt there's any negotiations about 2041 itself because that's a long way away. Nothing changes on the equity stake on that front, which is something people I don't think are quite aware of. People think that all of a sudden we have 100% control of our potential when we don't. Hydro, CFL Co., will have 65.8%. Hydro-Quebec will still maintain 34.2%. It's just how much people get to pay for a kilowatt hour and, you know, where the revenue side flows. So I think those are kind of two different things. What complicates this to the nth degree is muskrat and gull. I mean, how that factors in, I really don't know, but I guarantee you both are part of these conversations. So I think it's going to be hard to wrap our mind around what looks like a concession, what looks like a compromise, what looks like a win financially and or control over these projects. So it's going to be a tangly old mess. In addition, I really do think if I'm... Uh, Mr. Smith, and I'm sitting at that table, I'm absolutely including every step of the way the fact that uh, Quebec, because of the contract at the Upper Churchill, has been able to find a loophole in the equalization formula to the tune of $13.1 billion this year, simply because they don't show the fiscal capacity of Hydro-Quebec. They don't. They subsidize the rates, so consequently their revenues are not really reflective of the actual market for hydropower. That's got to be part of the conversation. That's a lever that we could be pulling. Well, and you know very well, Teddy, that part of the issue with equalization is Hydro-Quebec and the electricity that comes out of Churchill Falls. That's what I just said. Because you know how they, how they, they fiddle around with the equalization formula, and as a result, right now, they get about 50%. They get $13.5 billion uh, uh, equalization, and we get a pittance this year, a few hundred million. But it's all tied into subsidizing the electrical rates in Quebec, and the offset of that is more eligibility for uh, equalization monies. And so they come away with the lion's share of the equalization. But listen, 2041 is not that far away. I mean, I'd like to be around at the time, but when that comes, I'll be 97 years old. So I don't know if I'll be here or if I... If I'd be in the electric chair somewhere, but I can, you know as well as I know that negotiations are going on now, and we need to win, and we need to win badly. I know there are a lot of elements in play here, but we 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 have to play the ball a lot better than we played it way back in 1966, 67, and so on that led us down to this pathway sure. and all the damage that it's done. Okay, that's 2041. If you want to broach another couple of quick issues, let's do that because I do have to take a break. Okay, uh, just one other. Uh, there's a half a dozen, but I'll call you back on those. Uh, the penitentiary. The penitentiary is a national disgrace. It is. The, the penitentiary is a provincial disgrace. Disgrace. All this business about announcements about new penitentiaries, you've heard them and I've heard them. I remember... I remember, and you're probably too young, I remember Joe Clark and John Crosby coming to 
uh, recognition that they were going to build a new penitentiary. Clark was the prime minister, and uh, of course, when he lost the government with that, with the budget, the financial budget that year, then that was the end of that. So that's how long this has been going on. And so now we have a plan provincially. We do. I suppose we have an announcement. Let's put it that way. Uh, to build a new penitentiary on a scaled-down version. Now that's not what we need. A scaled-down version. That's only going to lead to more problems down the road. If we're going to do it, and we should do it, then let's do it right. Then the issue becomes: Where do we get the money? Well. I got an idea on where, if you're looking at government budgets and how much money they have and where they're going to spend and what they're going to spend it on, forget about tearing down St. Clair's Hospital. I mean, the Premier is on record as saying that it's 100 years old. So what? But it's not 100 years old. St. Clair's Hospital is not 100 years old. Regardless of how the old White it is. House is the White House is 100 years old. All right, old. but that's got nothing to do with St. Clair's. The, at well, some point, the, the St. Clair's will have to be replaced. It doesn't mean today, but at some point in the not-too-distant future, there will have to be something done about St. Clair's. It really is showing its age. So uh, that kind of came out of nowhere. Like, nobody but nobody was talking about tearing down St. Clair's and building a new hospital. All of a sudden, we're going to build a new St. Clair's. What? You know, so I don't think that's necessary at this moment in time, but at some point, not too far well, away. How old is St. Clair's? I don't know. Something like 87 years or something? Mm, it depends on what block you're talking about. I mean, the, if you go to the White House on the corner, yeah, that's all. That's probably uh, where it started, and then that's probably a historical site. The next block would have been built. I was born in that block, so that would have been built sometime in the, in the 30s. The rest of it came about in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, so it's not that old. I mean, all you need to do is go look up, the government needs to go go to Halifax and look at what they're doing there with their hospitals. The infirmary in Halifax goes back to the mid-18, late 1800s. Victoria General goes back to the late 1800s. They integrated into, into the QE2 in 1997. They reuse, they redevelop, they don't tear down. A new hospital will cost, God, I mean, look at the one out in Corner Brook. A new hospital may, might cost, whenever it gets built, if it gets built, uh, a billion dollars probably to put in a new hospital, let's say 10 years from now, because it's probably out that far. So why not... Why not redevelop, uh, uh, you know, I, I know there are changes that are needed there in technology and so on, but boy, I got misgivings about tearing down the hospital when, uh, when it's not really that old and, and can be redeveloped and maybe integrated into another branch of that hospital where the old Grace Hospital building is now. Anyhow, it's just a thought. I mean, if you only if you got limited money, and you're announcing here's school, there's school, here's a hospital, here's another hospital, uh, we're going to need that money from Churchill Falls. I'll guarantee you that. Oh yeah, <laughs> we're going to need every penny. Uh, I appreciate the time, Doc. Off to the break, I go. Okay, Fetty, you have a good year, and I'm sure I'll be in touch with you. I look forward to it. Thanks, Doc. <laughs> okay, buddy. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Let's take a break. Art's next. He also wants to talk about the Arbor Churchill, and then we're going to talk to you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. 
Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four, Art, you're on the air. Yes, Barry. Yes, sir. Joey said back in 1949, we'd have a fleet on our hands if we want Quebec to come in with us. That was back in 1949 on the Gummer Wharf home. He said, if he didn't go, he won't have to worry about us. <laughs> I think we got a fight in our hands with Quebec. Of course we do. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if we should be encouraged or whether or not there's any honesty to how Premier Legault came to the province there X number of months ago, acknowledging that it was a bad deal and the willingness to discuss or negotiate or bargain or whatever the right word is. So whether or not that's wolf in sheep's clothing or whether it's not it's legitimate, I guess we'll all find out soon because I would imagine some information is going to come from the province sometime this year. I mean, we've been at the table for quite a long time. There's either a deal to be had or there isn't. That's right. And he come here and he bluffed his way through. Bluffed. Who? Legault? Legault did. And because when we go to Quebec to try to get the upper Churchill, we ain't getting it. I don't know what's going to happen. I think it's really complicated, but to be honest, if we're, if we were just talking about the Upper Churchill as a standalone contract, that's one thing. But I think all of the other hydro developments are involved here. Maybe Churchill Two, Muskrat Falls, Gull Island, transmission-related issues. I think there's just going to be a big, like it's like drinking from a fire hose. There's going to be a ton of stuff to consider when that deal is either struck or not. Now, hopefully the province is not going to entertain anything but the very, very best we can. If it's not going to be a great deal, let's just not bother. See, the way Joey done it, we had no money to do the upper church show when they done it. That was part of it, yeah. So, so when Quebec took it over, Quebec got a lot of free power. They got everything. People with me worked here. On Churchill. So, you know, Churchill, uh, Quebec is taking it off. Well, they've certainly run roughshod over us on that particular project, you know, with a 34.2% equity stake, but buying power at 0.2 cents per kilowatt hour since 1969. Man, what a deal. What a deal. Yep. They left and all the way to the bank. And Joey said he didn't care because he said they'd have to fight over but he didn't go. He said when it happened. Yeah, the fight has just begun, I think. That's right. <laughs> I agree with you 100%. Yeah, we'll see. If, I mean, I think the province is right to not be discussing negotiations in public. But what we do have the possibility for, and this is where some of the confusion lies, it's going to be difficult for the vast majority of us to understand. Let's just say they make an announcement next week and says, here's where we've arrived for public debate and debate in the House of Assembly. Until we really have a firm understanding of exactly what the implications are in 2041, it's going to be hard to say that something's a good or a bad deal. Because oh, I think there's a ton of confusion out there as to what really happens at, on that date or, or that year. That's right. I hope to God they'll be alive to see it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we're going to hear something sooner than later, to be honest. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for the call, Art. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. And again, not trying to overcomplicate it for the sake of, but when you think about all the things that may indeed be considered here, looking back at 69 to today, looking forward from 24 to 41, 
you know, I think if there's money coming in the door, and it's going to be hard for me to understand whether or not it's great, good, bad, or indifferent, but there's absolutely included in this conversation is not just that 5,000-plus megawatts at upper, the Upper Churchill. You know full well there's discussions regarding muskrat and the potential for gull and transmission-related issues and mining concerns in the Labrador trough and the provision of power therein. There's going to be, I would imagine, 10 issues that are all bunched into one negotiation over the Upper Churchill and what happens when you look back, look forward, 2041, and all those other things combined. You know, I do think it's worthwhile considering what that consensus and the draft plan for Gaul in 2002 looked like. Maybe we should invite Roger Grimes on to just, you know, go down through the entirety of it. And again, the Upper Churchill is 15% of Hydro-Quebec's portfolio. They need our relationship with us. We don't necessarily need them as much as they need us at this moment of time. Does that mean we have some sort of big stick to bring to the meetings? Not necessarily. Does it mean we hold all the cards? No, of course not. But we might be in a better position than we have been in years past. So anyway, I'd really like to hear some information. But on that note, I agree we should not be negotiating in public. That would be in our collective be- will not be in our collective best interest. But there was a committee struck to look at 2041. There's no problem for us to te- for the government to help to tell us, whether it be through the committee or Minister Parsons or Premier Fury, about here's what the contract says. Here's what happens in 41. If it's simply a renegotiation on price that Hydro-Quebec can purchase the power, then that's probably all it really is. So let's see if people can fill in the blanks better and more clearer than I can. Let's take a break. When we come back, Alex is in the queue, wants to talk about wait lists for daycare. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Alex, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Doing great. How about you? Good. I'd like to talk about the uh, daycare wait list uh, for a couple of minutes. And, of course, everyone knows there's a big wait list for all these registered daycares, and we can kind of get in any places. My concern is not necessarily that there's a wait list. I believe that how the wait list is being gone through is unfair. Um, I believe there's a lot of nepotism going on with these wait lists. I believe there's a lot of favoritism going on with these wait lists. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm inaccurate, but I seem to be talking to more and more people. And I say, "Oh, how do your child get on the wait list?" Oh, I knew someone. Oh, my cousin works there. Oh, my uncle works there. Oh, uh, me, oh, my neighbor owns the clinic, which is fair enough. But you know, if we have regulated daycares, I almost wonder should the list be regulated as well. You know, should we have registration numbers? And that registration number is posted on the website. I don't know the answers, but... It's an interesting question. You know, the concept of it's who you know, not what you know, has long ruled the day. And not because that's a good thing, but that's just been the unfortunate fact of the matter. So I I like where you're going here. How, How do you stop, for instance, if I have a privately owned daycare... What's stopping me from saying that my neighbor who just has a new toddler and looks for a daycare space and I can't give it to them? So you're right. saying that we should manage it just like we manage other things like uh, the patient connect list. You know, like you don't really. License. Like, uh, you know, not to compare that, but that's regulated to lottery. You know, it's, you know, if it's, if it's re- regulated daycare, the government has given these people thousands of dollars a year to, to you know, s- subsidies. And yet they can just pick and choose who goes on this daycare. There's no no one. You're right. If a neighbor owns something, there's no nothing to say that they they can't get their neighbor in. 
it doesn't make it a good thing. It just makes it a, 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 a dose of reality. But I do like where you're going here. So if yeah. we have this portal that's been opened by the provincial government for people to put their uh, their name forward, looking for a daycare spot, talk about what region they live in, what have you, maybe you're right. right. You know, I, I guess you'd have to break it down a little <clears> bit further, too, by age, because it's easier to get a spot for a four-year-old than it is for a one-and-a-half-year-old. So some of that makes it a little bit more complicated, but you're 100% right. When it's as important as it is, when it's as substantive, as it is, it should be a bit more fair than it's currently structured. Absolutely. I mean, $10 a day for a child. I mean, can you imagine the thousands of dollars the governments are spending? I'm on their website here now, and, you know, there's some significant money being thrown around here, you know, talking about defunding uh, for the capacity grants, and, you know, we're talking everything from 7000 to $15,000. I can only tell you what, I know people who are in unregistered daycares, they're paying Fifty, sixty, seventy dollars a day, Patty, for unregistered daycare right now. But what do you do? Stay home? Like there's no option. You have to pay us. If, if you're not making minimum wage, because uh, if you are making minimum wage and you have a child in unregistered daycare, you might as well stay home. To be honest with you, um, and it's just constantly like to give you some examples, Patty. I'm on fifteen daycare wait lists. I were called two years ago to put my child on this wait list and at the time they say oh yeah it'll be about two years perfect so I called back a couple days ago and they say oh yeah it'll be another two years how is that possible how is there no movement on the wait list one daycare said oh we haven't looked at that daycare in a, uh, that, that wait list in a couple of years we're just right now we're uh, dealing with uh, the people who have second children and giving them priority which is fine I get that but how do you not look at your wait list how did I call two years ago and you gave me an estimated timeline and it's still the timeline? I mean, I know people who, well, I don't know them personally, but they communicate with me saying that, you know, we're pregnant. We haven't even had the baby yet and we're on wait lists. So people hear the stories and they get quite stressed out because long gone is the day, unless you're married to someone who is a massive big income earner, long gone is the day when someone has the legitimate option to stay home. You know, people will take their maternity leave and their and their paternity leave, but without two people working in regular middle class kind of jobs, without those two incomes coming in the door, it's hard to make ends meet. So daycare is critically important component. Yeah, and just I'm just getting very frustrated. Like this, this is what sparked the call today, where it's like I, I just want fairness in these wait lists, and that cannot be tracked. It can't be. It's it's not regulated. It's you know, I, and they, they never tell you the number, so you call them and say, well, can you give me, like, an idea? Am I 20 behind, 30 behind, 40 behind? No, I can't tell you. Why, why can't you tell me? If, if you're going, this person, oh, they're not available. Oh, they're still pregnant. They never had their kid yet. Oh, go to the next person. Go to the next person. How can you not tell me where I sit on that wait list? Yeah, you should have a number. You, you really should have a number. If I'm waiting for an organ transplant, I know where I am. <laughs> I'm not to say yeah. the same, but... Just to make no, it it's just unbelievably frustrating. So anyway, now I'm on 15 daycares. I called them all yesterday. My wait list uh, at, at the yin yang, and uh, no one can tell me where I sit on that wait list. Um, because I, I again, maybe I'm completely out to lunch on this one. But like I said, they're I don't even know if we c could call them private daycares anymore. They're getting fifteen thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars per child subsidy. How private is that? Yeah, I, I think it's just a word we've got used to using. It might not you know? be necessarily reflective of exactly what it is. 
I, I'm going to have to give this more thought because uh, I, you know, the one thing that popped in as a complicating factor is the age of the child, because of course, you know, it, that has been one of the concerns that people have. The toddler spaces are really hard to come by. So yeah. anyway, I am going to think this through a little clearer, but I think you're 100% right. There should be an acknowledgement of wh- how long you've been on the list, where you are on the list, why you have an advanced X number of spaces on the list, because then we can line up your your concern, your suggestion. We can then line it up directly with numbers coming from the government, right? Because they, they told us, well, we've created X number of new spaces, but what they did not include in that updated number was how many spaces that have been lost and what the actual net gain is. So if we had a net gain number to consider, let's say a monthly update, that yep. would have to be reflected in the number of children that were on the list 30 days ago, how many are on the list today, and where you are on the list, how you moved in the last 30 days. That's manageable. It's maybe a bit cumbersome, and it might create a bit of work, but at least we'd have that transparent air of fairness. Well, like I said, like, again, you used organ donation, for example, list. I use moose license, right? Yeah. It's, it's My, mine was right? poorly thought through. Poor, poor choice. But, but, but you know what I mean? It's the same concept. I, I get where you're coming from, but it's pools, right? It's lotteries. You can anticipate, okay, well, I'm in pool seven, whatever. Next year, it's likely I will get a spot. Why can't – I know it's, it's – it's, we're comparing apples to grapes here, but it, it's similar. Why can't it be like that? So then it can give the parents, okay, just suffer out another year. Just, you know, put put all the, you know, your daycare costs on a credit card or a line. Of, just So it gives them a little, little glimmer of hope so they can say, wow, you know, at least we're going to get in September. Or at least we're going to get in in 2025 or whatever case may be, right? Yeah, you're 100% so right. Happening. People are going into debt because they're paying for daycare. And that's the reality of it. Well, the daycare can be more than your mortgage. It 100% is. And then you look at population. I mean, me and my wife are sitting there right now. We're saying, do you want another kid? Well, if we have another kid right now, and the other kid goes into unregistered daycare, it'd be more more than our mortgage payment. You know, right? The concept of wanting to have more children comes with a lot of concerns. Same thing when we talk about young families and their, their decision to set down roots. If mm-hmm. things like childcare aren't at the top of the list, I'll be surprised because it was the conversation when we were having our children. Now, I, you know, again, times were a little bit different even that long ago, just a couple of decades ago. I, had, I took the opportunity to work at night. I stayed home for three years, and some of it was because we couldn't afford daycare. Right. And this has been not, this is not a 2023 or 2024 problem or a COVID issue. This has been my mother-in-law said, well, geez, back in my day, we were paying the same thing. We were paying, you know, 50, 60 bucks a day. for It's always been a problem, right? It's, it's always been expensive. And I've, I'm not going to, you know, <clears throat> you know, debate or anything. The cost of childcare, I get it. It's expensive. It's, you know, people are doing this out of their homes. They have to make a living as well. It's um, the cost is not the issue for me. It's the, it's, well, it is at the end of the day, but it's, it's this, Friggin' daycare wait list, you know, shenanigans, I call it, because I would like, I don't know who's responsible or what minister is responsible for daycares, but if they went into a daycare, could an audit be done almost and say, okay, well, you got 10 children in your manifest in this room. Show me where these 10 children, where, where were they were on the day, uh, where were they listed on the, on the wait list? And just to see some fairness here. Yeah, and then I think uh, there was another point you made where maybe the brother, the new little baby brother of the child that you've had for three, four, five years in your daycare gets a space in front, you know, some of those legacy admissions like we talk about at university. Yeah. That might be something that's reasonable, I 
possible, but uh, of course, I haven't given it any thought until you brought it up here this morning, but I like the idea of having a better understanding of where I am on the list and why I haven't advanced over time, especially when the governor's telling me they've created more spaces. And you know, you you mentioned who's responsible. It would be the Minister of Education, because I think sometimes we simply call it daycare, as opposed to what we should focus in on probably a little bit more is early childhood education, because 90% of your brain is developed by the time you're five. So it's not just a place for you to, to go and learn how to share toys and have a nap and get a juice box. It really is about trying to nurture the child, you know, to begin the learning stages. And I'm not talking about sitting down with a uh, math book or anything, but they do indeed tailor games for learning as opposed to simply, you know, someone minding your children. So I think we should add that in. Yeah, and listen, I'm not, you know, some some people are going to listen to this station now and listen to the show and they're saying, that guy's at lunch. But you mentioned earlier about people putting their kid on daycare lists. I know people who put their name on daycare lists, and I don't think they're even pregnant yet. They're just trying. Right? Like, what what do we say for that? Should that be allowed? Uh, probably not. I think you should probably be pregnant before you should put your name on the list. You know, holding a spot for a child that's maybe not even uh, in the womb is probably a bit much. Yeah, I don't know. Now, now prove it. Now, when you call and put your name on a child care list in an application, prove the child's not born yet. You know, yeah, it asks for birthdays, but but geez, but the zombie lists are going through. Perfect. So they're going to put the kid on the list, not even pregnant yet, possibly, or just starting to get pregnant. Maybe they're a week pregnant. And I, I, I don't know how to answer that question because I've never actually gone on the portal to see what kind of information is requested or required to add a name to the list. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a birthdays, but I mean, by the time, if you've got a kid, if you've got a mother who's uh, a week pregnant, or by the time they actually get a list, according to the, to the wait lists, their kid is going to be two years old anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, if you, I don't know, maybe people are abusing it by simply saying, well, this is my due date, and they're pretending it's an actual birth date. I, I don't know, because mm-hmm. I've never been on the portal. It's an interesting conversation, though, Alex. I'm glad you made time for the show. All right. Thanks, Patty. Thanks for the call. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah. How should that list work? Uh, again, you know, that we've got to understand the nuances involved, but it would give us a real good opportunity for measuring success. You know, you hear me say it all the time. We, you know, we'll get announcements and pots of money and jobs created, whether it be net jobs created or otherwise, but how do we actually measure success of the program of $10 a day daycare? Look, and I know people tell me this all the time. If you have children, they should be, you should be doing it on your own dime, not looking for support from anywhere else. It's proven to be good for everybody. The economic upside for GDP growth and people getting back to work and the ability to pay the bills and stave off the wolf, the research is pretty clear. It's good for all. And I don't have any skin in the game. My kids are in their 20s, right? I don't need daycare. You know, and if I, I'm in a bit of a different uh, professional circumstance now than I was when they were born. So even if the boys had kids at this moment in time, I think we'd be all right. But I think the overall economic upside of affordable and accessible daycare has been proven time and time again. Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of show left for you. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this hour on line number two. Say good morning to the PC candidate running in the pending by-election in Conception Bay, East Bell Island. That's Tina Neri. Good morning, Tina. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Not too bad. Thanks. How about you? 
Very good, thanks. Before I we get into some issues, just oh. just one second, Tina. I've had a concern offered by someone who lives in your voting district about your campaign office. This person has a disability and says that your office isn't accessible and there's no handicapped parking space. What do you say to that? Uh, we don't have a campaign headquarters actually in the district. We have a working space for my team directly. Um, but as far as having, so what that person's referring to, whatever that might be, is not actually a public space. So it's a it's an area that that I'm working from outside of my home, but okay. it's not accessible. Like it's not for public space. So if anybody has um, the need to want to reach out to me or, or want to meet with me about something, then they can certainly do so, and we'll accommodate them absolutely with what's necessary. Fair enough. That was a concern they asked me to put forward to you, so I did. Yes, thank you very much. And uh, and hopefully that satisfies their concern. <laughs> um, and outside of that, yeah, I just was uh, I was just calling in today. I wanted to bring attention to a story that I read earlier in the week about an individual from our district, uh, from over on Bell Island. And it just, uh, it just adds again to what we've been talking about uh, relative to cost of living. And this uh, this uh, this mom, her and her husband, she uh, they they've reached out and and again just very concerned about what the future holds for them. They are having they're struggling with um, putting food on the table, determining whether or not they are going their children are going to eat or whether or not they're going to be keeping warm. And it's a very real uh, situation for them. And so I just uh, you know I've had a conversation with. The individual, she actually was um, she was she was involved in a in a group in a local group uh, called Neighbors in Need that um, does some really great work for uh, re- provides really great services and donations etc for individuals who are struggling who reach out and so this this person in my district uh, has reached out to this particular service they did receive uh, some donations and some um, some things that came their way over the Christmas break, over the Christmas holidays. And so, I, yeah, I was just talking to her over the last couple of days. And aside from hearing this as a concern to people at the uh, at the doors, that is the concern of people, is how are they going to move forward? And how are they going to make ends meet? Whereas this family in particular, like many, this is just one that has spoken out, um, they're already experiencing that. They're, it's, they're in the throes of it. They don't know how to get beyond the next week and how to get food on the table. So these are the things that are that are coming about that are just, again, really, you know, we should all be very concerned about that. Yeah, I think that's the story where the lady's talking about her and her husband going hungry so to ensure that the kids eat, which is really quite sad when you think about it. That's right. Inside the world of cost of living, you know, the province has talked about potentially extending beyond March some of the initiatives they've entertained, like half of the provincial gas tax, uh, no tax on home insurance, the fee issue at motor vehicles. So other than the potential to extend some of those, what do you suggest can be done to control cost of living because food inflation and general inflation is you know not really something the province has a whole lot of levers to tug on so what are you suggesting yes i can uh, yeah and you know it's I guess in, in particular, it's being able, it's the resources that are available, right? I mean, I know in particular this family is from Bell Island. And so one of the things, and I and just one of the things, because we know there are a number of issues and, and some may be more intense than this one, but there are individuals that have been asking, say, for example, for the ABE program to be brought back, the Adult Basic Education Program. We know at the end of the day that, you know, poverty is linked to education sometimes. And um, so that's something that I think that we should be able to look at and see if if there's a way to help individuals to move forward and uh, you know give them set them up to be able to be more productive when it comes to seeking employment and that sort of thing 
uh, you know, the more people that we can have ready to be able to go out and be employed and 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 work and be off of income support is, you know, better again in in bringing money into into their pockets. Um, that's that, that's just one of the things of of many that I think that we can be looking at. But I mean, cost of living is exactly that. The more the you know the way I look at it, though, the more we put money back into the pockets of individuals, the less support they're going to need from the government. And so, on, you know, on adult basic that. education, are you saying that that program is no longer available? There's many places it's where not. you can get it. Yes, but when you live on the island and you're, you know, when you live on Bell Island, excuse me, and you have a number of other issues that that take place on a, on the regular, and you in, in, like the ferry service. Of course, we know, like I mean, with the ferry service being uh, not as as consistent as it should be, we have individuals on Bell Island who have to, you know, start at the beginning of the week to try to plan for their end of the week to see if they're going to be able to go where is necessary if the boat's not running. Well, sure, right? so but, I mean, there's lots of places for that, Patty. Those places well, are all here, right? They're here in the metro area, and it's not something that's completely accessible to them. Well, I mean, you can go to Discovery Center, Key and Tech, the Murphy Center, Academy Canada, just off the top of my head, places where you can get uh, adult basic education. But, of course, you know, it's hard to incorporate the ferry concern with the opportunity to get some of these literacy issues addressed. Which is why we want to have them back over on Bell Island, where they were in the first place, where people were managing, uh, you know, by far better with the resources available to them. If the, if the resources aren't available to people, then it's not something that they can move forward with, right? So the resources are no longer available on Bell Island. All of the places that you've just mentioned, absolutely, it's, it's perfect if you live on this side and you live in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, or you live out uh, around the Killa Coast, or you live, over, uh, you know, beyond the overpass. You can get yourself to those areas to follow through and, and be part of uh, of the, the services that are provided, the resources that are available. You can't do that if you can't get to them. Okay. Yeah, I'm not really sure what to say to that because, of course, they would have to travel off the island for a variety of amenities and services and programs and education, for instance, if we're talking post-secondary and or in the adult world. Uh, anything else quickly before we say goodbye, Tina? Yes, thank you. I just wanted to also say that we did have uh, the opportunity for an event last evening and uh, my campaign launched. And I just wanted to say a big thank you to everybody that came out. It was uh, it was an excellent, excellent turnout. We were supported by many and we were just very much looking forward to um, the opportunity to be able to kick that off. And it was it was a great, uh, a great success. So um, also tomorrow we have. Um, uh, tomorrow we have an event that's happening also over on Bell Island. It's lunch with the leader, and so anybody on Bell Island that is interested in participating can certainly reach out and get some further information from my social media. Uh, last one. Any thoughts on the fact that there's now a fourth candidate on the ballot? Daryl Harding, former president of the District Association for the PCs, running as an interesting title, an independent PC candidate. The thought in some corners that might split the vote on the conservative side consequently hurt your candidacy. Your thoughts? No, I don't believe that's going to have any effect whatsoever. And, um, you know, the the independent is not running as a progressive conservative uh, candidate. They are running as an individual, is my understanding, with, you know, that that uh, identifies himself as being a progressive and a conservative individual. So like the rest of the candidates, I think, you know, we're all out to do the best that we can and work our own campaigns and find our supporters and bring this home at the end. So... I appreciate the time. Good luck.
Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Tina. Tina Neary running for the PCs. And of course, the rest of that ballot will be Kimberly Churchill running for the NDP, Fred Hutton on the Liberal banner, and Daryl Harding running as what he calls an independent PC candidate. Let's take a break. When we come back, there's a caller in the queue to talk about municipal issues. Don't go away. Ooh, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Okay, Paddy, just want to talk about something about municipal penalties. They make good decisions and they make bad ones. Of course, uh, one good one that they made, I won't think negative. The positive part is uh, uh, certain uh, municipal penalties had garbage picked up once a month uh, before, the, like in the spring and right up to the fall. Then they cut it back to half that and they kept going and going every year. I just noticed this over time, and uh, what they've been doing is down to uh, one garbage collection per year. That's good, because they're saving the taxpayers money. And that uh, that uh, reflects on our uh, taxes, and we might get uh, reduced taxes uh, to, to respond to, because as you know, Betty, people are struggling, and uh, I think uh, the majority of people who elected officials in the government they were told they're going to be represented properly and had their heels dug in to uh, fix a few things. But Paddy Hepburn said this. Just before we move uh, on, what kind of what communities collect garbage once a year? I'm sorry about that. This is recyclables, Paddy. Oh, I'm recyclables. Sorry about the word I said. Uh, it's uh, w- once every week they pick up uh, recyclables. Okay. Now, the the uh, bulk garbage is once a year. I didn't say. It. Sorry about that. No, that's. I just want to make sure we were on the same page. Sure. Uh, well, they fixed that about the uh, once a year in the in the spring to fall to have one bulk garbage collection. Now the uh, recyclables is once a week in Mount Pearl. Other municipalities, uh, far west and far east of us, have do it twice a week. Uh, I'm sorry, once every two weeks. So that tells you right there that we're we're losing money because they got to spend money for the truck to pick that up, the gas to fuel it, the employee who uh, operates that machine, and the maintenance for that machine. So we're simply losing money. Yeah, I'm pretty uh, sure here in the that. city, I only get my recycles picked up once every two weeks. Well, in St. John's they do. In Mount Pearl they don't. Okay. Now, that's a fact, and uh, they had time to fix that when they had the last negotiations. But, Patty, it, uh, it was brought up, and uh, nobody moved on it. Uh, they had it in their hands. I mean, that amount that they saved, Patty, got to be significant. Got to be. And anyway, there was nothing done about it. I heard callers calling call in before about it, and I uh, and I heard no response. But I, I like to put it out there now for anyone who's uh, was elected in Mount Pearl to get on and address it and explain to the people, the taxpayers in Mount Pearl, uh, what justifies this uh, procedure to continue? It's a fair question, and we can try to get someone to answer it. Uh, remind me, what happened with the most recent budget in Mount Pearl? Was there an increase to your property tax? Uh, the middle rate stayed the same, but the value of the properties, I believe, went up, if I got that straight, which still made still meant an increase because the old middle rate is on the... Uh, and the new uh, value of your house. So, if I got that information correct, I think I do. Well, there's you're right. There's two components: is the uh, uh, the property tax is made up of the mill rate plus the value of your home. And of course, in the city of St. John's, we get an annual evaluation of our 
property uh, value. So uh, in for St. John's, I can only speak for myself, but I would imagine I'm speaking for the bulk of uh, the residents of this city. The most recent budget here, my property tax is going up 13%, about 450 bucks. Uh, yeah, they said their, if I'm not mistaken, they said their mail rate was going up. I could be wrong about that, but uh, they froze the mail rate from Mount Pearl, but the value of the homes going up, so you're still getting an increase. Yeah, so and I, that we're struggling. Yeah, the government only, the municipal government can only control the mill rate and uh, not the property valuation. But you're, you're right. That's the, the the last lever to come up with what the eventual property yeah. tax will be is that mill rate. Right. Mill rates went up here, individuals and commercial. So. Yeah. But we got to find every great. avenue to save money because the bottom line is, you know, we got to ship to run to the people who are uh, just taxpayers uh, uh, that are. Uh, Keeping their head, head above water. I mean, uh, with the price of the food going up and uh, the bills going up, you know, we we, we got a ship to run too. We got to keep it. Uh, we got to do it out less. Right, we're doing more less this year than we did last year. And how far can this? How much further can this go? That's a good question. Uh, uh, I know that. But you- I, I like a municipal uh, leader to get on and. Uh, you know, they're all gung-ho about getting elected, going around your door and everything like that. But I like to have something to explain. Where, where is the funding going for this? And, yes, we we are going to save if they take away that uh, once-a-week uh, 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 recyclable collection and reduce it to, two, to uh, two weeks or maybe even three because they did it with the bulk garbage and they uh, made a service once a year. Uh, uh, before they save money by reducing it from every month of the year from the spring to the fall to now it's only once I mean that that had to be saving money so will this too yeah the, the more infrequent you do something the less it will cost of course yes we have three or four ways fuel employee uh, mechanical uh, repairs uh, less time on the road uh, it's got to be significant so it's 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 clear it's clear as a bell, you know what I mean. And it's just it's just not good management for that one particular issue. I appreciate the time and the concern. If we can get someone to answer your question, we're happy, more than happy to do it. Yes, Patty, and uh, probably check it out yourself if you want to and see if uh, what the numbers is uh, uh, concerning how much it do cost uh, per householder, because there is a, there is an answer to that. Oh, sure, that breakdown's got to be available. I mean, that would be pretty basic math. Cost of garbage collection, cost of recycling collection, divided by the number of homes. Bob's your uncle. Sure. We, the taxpayer has the right to know, you know, transparency. Sure. Yeah, we'll see if we can get an answer for you. Thank you very much, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, you know, and uh, one of the listeners, Judy, sent an email earlier talking about exactly that issue. Well, not the recycling pickup and frequency issue, about municipal taxes here in the city of St. John's. We had a couple of calls on it, but that's it. You know, because that's a pretty significant increase year over year, 13%. You know, water tax is going up as well. So a couple of things on that front. The bulk of the ex- increased expenditure is fleet management, whether it be inside of uh, snow removal and ice management and garbage collection. There was significant downtime. I think in the world of garbage, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60% of machinery was down at one point or another throughout the year, which is pretty lopsided. And so there's going to be massive expenditure to renew or to repopulate some of the aging fleet. It's a necessary evil. It's got to happen. But it really feels like a lot of it is happening all in the one year. So Judy was spot on as far as I'm concerned. Very little reaction from townies 
about a massive increase in our property tax. On top of that, there was that one issue that uh, faces, I think the number is 700 households. The fact that they're doing away with the ability to get an exemption for your water tax, which I think is 675 bucks. So it used to be, sorry, I had to cough. It used to be, if you had a basement apartment that wasn't being rented, you could prove to the city that you were no not bringing in any revenue. There was no renters downstairs, and so you got a break on your second water tax. That's gone away. So unless you do a variety of things, like there's issues regarding egress, and then there's you know taking away the stove uh, cord from the electrical panel, which comes with significant cost. So unless you do all that, you're going to be charged double water tax. They say that it's based on legislation that you're simply not allowed to do what they were doing, offering the exemptions. Maybe there's a way to figure this out, legislatively speaking. And on top of it, like if you do away with your basement apartment to try to avoid the double water tax, you just hurt the property value as well. Because it's more attractive on the market if indeed you have an apartment in the basement. Because that's additional revenue to help cover your mortgage as the primary mortgage holder. So that one was problematic. And when we speak about apartments, I should throw this one out there as well. So in the province's most recently announced five-point housing plan, which included no conversation regarding the transitional housing move that's been made, we haven't heard from the city about zoning and any concerns that the city of St. John's might have with this play, if they have any at all. I've heard from residents near Port Heights, which are really not pleased with what's happening. So we can take that from uh, the 100 angles that are available. So, But uh, the five-point plan, right. So one of the ones there that was good for maybe both sides of this coin or sword is that there was a forgivable loan uh, up to or an interest-free loan up to $40,000 over the course of five years to put a basement suite in your home. So for folks, that might be pretty attractive because, of course, that would help the, the vacancy issue and the number of rentals available. Some of the money coming in in the form of rent can help you with the bills and or to pay your uh, own mortgage yourself. So I wonder how many people have taken up that potential uh, that's been brought forward by the province. Now, the trick there is getting someone to do the work for you because it's hard to come by subcontractors, especially for what might be deemed the smaller jobs. Last one before we get to the news. So I, I mentioned the call we had with Rod Pike, the chair of Newfoundland Labrador Crime Stoppers yesterday on contraband tobacco because, you know, they provide a pretty important service to the people of the province when we talk about public safety. So he was just trying to make the point, and I've been lambasted several times since I brought it up this morning, suggesting that, you know, I'm insinuating people are purposefully jeopardizing public safety by buying contraband tobacco. Look, the line that was being drawn was that the money from the sale of illegal cigarettes was going directly into the hands and the pockets of organized crime members, and consequently, what do they use it for? More nefarious and toxic and dangerous drugs and guns and human trafficking. So that's just the point. You'll do as you see fit. You know, I'm not going to come on hinge because I know someone bought a contraband smoke because, you know, people say I'm looking out for number one. If I can save money, I'm going to save money. So anyway, I just brought it up because that was the line was being drawn with a caller who was actually working on that type of file along with many others. He also went on to say that this province wants another couple regarding Nova Scotia, B.C. and Ontario. We buy more illicit, illegal tobacco per capita than other provinces. And he went on to add, and this one I think was really interesting for context. Unstamped tobacco is eight times more profitable for the under the uh, crime world than cocaine. Eight times more profitable than cocaine. Amazing stuff. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away.
Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Liberal member for St. John's East, Kitty Vitti. He's the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. That's John Abbott. Minister Abbott, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty, and trust things are going well with you today. Not too bad at all. How about you? Good, sir. Look, uh, Patty, I was calling in, really wanted to respond to my uh, transportation critic, Lyle O'Driscoll, who's been making some statements of late around 24-hour snow clearing here in the province. So one of the things I want to clear up is that, in fact, we've never had 24 hours snow clearing on all our routes in the province. Right now, we have approximately 289 what we call snowplow routes, of which 14 ever had 24-hour snow uh, snow clearing. So I just wanted to clarify that, and that's been well known, uh, and uh, Mr. O'Driscoll would know that as a, as a fact. The What we are doing is on the major routes around the TCH in particular, uh, that we are providing uh, up to 24-hour snow clearing. The difference for us is that if we look at the snow, uh, the forecast, and there is no snow in the forecast for a, a period uh, overnight, we will not have the plows on. We don't see the need for that. My officials have uh, worked on this uh, issue for quite a number of years, and it's been consistent advice to former ministers, uh, uh, to me, and if uh, Mr. O'Driscoll was in this position, he w- would be getting the same advice. But what we are very conscious of is making sure that when we know there's snow in the forecast, that we have all our equipment on uh, as many hours and many shifts as as we need to do so. And if we look at what happened uh, on the East Coast over the last uh, weekend, obviously we were out, we responded, we cleared the roads, and uh, I was very pleased to to see that uh, happen and certainly congratulate and uh, thank our snowplow operators and maintenance crews for, for keeping the roads open. There was a pilot program, I think, last seven or eight years. Uh, regarding some of these snow routes uh, yeah. that you mentioned, and that was in place for a while. But just let me, I'll just paint the picture of a scenario and you tell me what you think about it. So we've long been told, including you've told me, that if and when there's an emergency situation, evidence needs to be dispatched and or uh, firefighters, what have you, then the plows will get out on the road. So let's say I'm at home, I have an emergency. I call 911, they dispatch an ambulance, your depot is notified, we call the snow plow operator at home, gets up out of bed, makes his way to the depot, gets the plow operating, goes out to plow the road for the ambulance. The time that that takes, when added up against an emergency, how does that work? Well, How was that enough? Yeah, and, and obviously timing is going to be important. So if it's uh, during the, I'll say, from 4, 30, 5 o'clock a.m. till uh, 10 o'clock at night, our plows are out. Other than that, there is a call back. Uh, so they're expedited. Uh, you know, Those calls are expedited, and they're uh, out on the road uh, as quickly as possible. So there is and can be a, a timing lag there, and we understand that. Uh, and that's the challenge because we wouldn't be able to do that on every road. As I said, we have 289 routes, so uh, we wouldn't be able to do 24-hour service. We don't need that, but we're very conscious of that and working very closely with the emergency uh, operators, i.e. ambulance service, and if we have to get doctors or nurses called back in uh, uh, overnight, uh, we make sure that those roads are cleared for them as well. How many people actually work in snow removal and ice management? 
Well, we have, uh, uh, in terms of the department overall, we have roughly 1,500 staff, uh, and the majority of those are, are going to be on our uh, on our highways, either summer or w- uh, winter maintenance. So we're talking eight, seven, eight hundred uh, staff, uh, and then we got our maintenance. Excuse me, our uh, our mechanics and all that included as that in that as well. Okay, I, I know this is not necessarily your department any longer, but you have been working on the housing file. Are you a member of the task force? Uh, yes, I'm uh, with uh, myself, uh, Mayor Breen, and uh, uh, Doug Pawson within Homeless of St. John's. Okay, let's talk about the transition plan here for a second. So we know now the province had never entertained the idea of potentially buying the hotel versus the three-year lease that's in place, but there's still a lot of details that are yet to be fully understood. One thing is staffing concerns, because we've had a healthcare staffing concern across the board. You know, when we establish collaborative care clinics, sometimes the staff operating in them have just moved from another clinic. So what can you tell us about what kind of staff will actually be in place? What's the plan? The, the right now we are actually doing re- recruiting for positions so we'll have a mix of social workers we may have uh, some nursing su- support staff some housing support staff uh, that we will uh, be recruiting um, and really with a focus on on harm reduction so that folks uh, who may be uh, with addictions or mental health issues that we can uh, support them in a more uh, conducive environment shall we say it's a safe it's a clean it's a warm space they'll have uh, their three meals a day uh, and it'll be a wraparound service, and, they will, and there will be somebody on site uh, for most of that. We'll, obviously, there'll be security as well, so it will be safe for, for all concerned. Uh, we're not, uh, at this point, certainly concerned about staffing there. We're talking maybe up to 15 uh, in total for a team that will work uh, five, six, seven days a week as needed, and uh, we're looking at what uh, is done in Halifax. That's been quite successful, so we're uh, we're optimistic that uh, we, we can pull this off uh, very quickly. We also also have within Homeless of St. John's and the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation and the Newfoundland and Labrador Health Services, uh, some of their staff will also supplement uh, the uh, the team as well. Uh, obviously, working with the operator uh, of the facility, uh, they're very open to uh, piloting uh, different ways to make sure their uh, in-house staff uh, are also part of the, the team and can support the, uh, support the individuals. So does that mean, like uh, Jim Din is talking about, that their staff will be tra- training what they call trauma-informed practices? I, I, I can see that as being part of this because uh, that, that, that would only make sense. Uh, we would do that in any of our shelters and uh, other uh, other uh, transitional housing here in the city. So that will be uh, something we'll be focusing on uh, as well. Let's focus in on the transitional component here. <clears throat> what type of effort will be given to exactly that? Because it's not just an emergency shelter. Well, at least we hope it is not. No. So what type of retraining programs or implementing the employment stabilization program or things that can see people transition for the need for this type of housing into maybe being more self-reliant and, you know, back in the uh, the workforce, what have you. There's got to be a strict attention to this. Other than that, it might just turn into what we now know as a traditional emergency shelter. Well, uh, the first and foremost, uh, in, there will be a triaging uh, exercise here. So the individuals that will go now to the transitional housing will uh, be looked at in terms of physical, mental, and other states that this this facility will work for them, uh, that we will then be given the opportunity, and they will, more importantly, they will be given the opportunity uh, then to work with uh, with our staff on the issues that uh, impact and affect them most. 
and we, as we say, we'll meet them where they are. Uh, we'll make sure that we can provide the appropriate counseling, uh, harm reduction if there is uh, alcohol uh, uh, and management treatment. All of that we will try to bring uh, to the to the individual. And then as the individual is ready and willing, uh, we'll then bring them to exactly the things you're talking about. Uh, what are you wanting in, in, uh, in future housing? What is it you want in terms of employment and income support? Those kinds of things. So it will be, uh, a tra- that's why the word transition is to bring them from where they are to, so that we can, at the end of this, I'll use the word graduate, uh, if, if that's appropriate, to say then that we can provide then uh, more permanent housing and supports in the community. What type of rules will be in place that would have to be uh, complied to with things like drug use and alcohol use on site? Uh, uh, well, that will be, uh, again, the team will be looking at uh, that, uh, uh, what is appropriate. Uh, and to be honest, I don't know how far along they are in their thinking on, on that, and that's something they'll be, uh, they will be working on. Last one. They talk about vetting criteria for eligibility for placement in one of these 140 rooms. What does that look like in your mind? Where do we even start there? Because complex needs are exactly that. They're complex. People might be in different stages of life, different severities of addiction. So what does criteria and eligibility and vetting mean? What does it look like? Well, one of the things that uh, I guess most people wouldn't appreciate is that many of the individuals, uh, folks that might be down in the uh, encampment there at the Colonial Building or elsewhere that are in and out of our shelters, uh, they have been all pretty well registered with the different programs and services here in the city and elsewhere in the province. So we have a good, uh, I guess, handle on their immediate needs, uh, and then we will be looking at the, their suitability, and their, and part of this is their willingness uh, and the capacity to, to move to the next stage. Uh, and that will be done by the clinicians, social work, and nurses, and they will make uh, recommendations uh, to the team as to who's appropriately placed where. We're doing that today, um, but this is a new service, so we'll uh, bring that uh, skill set uh, uh, to those uh, individuals. And we're very optimistic uh, that this will be a significant path forward. In the meantime, the gathering place uh, is under uh, total re- redevelopment. Uh, that will be a game changer when that comes on, uh, in place later on this year, uh, because that will have uh, 90 beds, uh, some of which will be shelter beds, uh, new and, uh, and state-of-the-art, but there will be also independent units and apartments so that people then can also transition within that facility. So bringing all that together here in the city uh, over the literally over the next couple of months, we will see significant uh, change and improvement in how we're dealing with uh, homelessness uh, uh, in this part of the, the province. And we're having those same discussions in Happy Valley Goose Bay. Uh, we're having the discussions in Gander for central Newfoundland. And we're having those discussions in Cornerbrook for the, for the West Coast. Two very quick ones. Are there still people living in tents behind Colonial Building? Uh, when I was down there the other day, there were three or four individuals that were staying that particular night. Uh, so that's we're down to that two, three, four number. Uh, some have uh, opted to, it might have been a shelter, to, to come back. Uh, and we are continuing to work with them to provide the and recommend services for them because we do have capacity in the city. No one needs to uh, stay in a tent, uh, but some have chosen to do that uh, while we're working through uh, what is more appropriate uh, options for them and uh, we're not f- trying to force anybody into something they're they're not comfortable with. We know that the province is looking at minimum standards for emergency shelters. Is that also going to be applied to this transition house? What will security presence look like? Uh, well, the, 
the the uh, the standards would be for for, for shelters uh, f- f- focus. So the transition unit, uh, I guess, will meet and exceed anything that we would have uh, on the uh, on the the standards process that we're talking about. And then we'll obviously, as part of uh, our health services, generally there are there will be security uh, uh, presence as well. Appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you, sir. All the best. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. John Abbott, Minister of Transportation Infrastructure, of course, touching in on the housing issue. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Let's take you more to the NDP candidate running in the by-election conception by East Bell Island. That's Kim Churchill. Good morning, Kim. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Best kind. How about you? I'm doing great this morning. I want to call in today because uh, I noticed that the government is running ads uh, on their affordability plan and how that's going to bring relief to seniors. And uh, I'm sure that you and your listeners know that the NDP have been talking for a very long time now about providing relief to seniors. And we talked about how to bring relief to, in fact, all people that are struggling to make ends meet. Um, I've been hearing at the door while I've been out canvassing that um, uh, I've spoken to so many seniors and you can hear the desperation in their voices and tell me if they're on fixed income. And they literally do not know how they're going to pay their rent and heat their home. Or they might be having to um, not be able to afford buying their medication and their groceries. And they're having to make these tough choices. And it's completely impossible to make these decisions. And it's heartbreaking to hear their stories. They should never be in the position uh, and forced to make. And, you know, I've also spoken to many young families who are in similar positions. And they're having to choose between paying for gas for their vehicles or their electricity. And, you know, I myself have two growing teenage boys, and we, you know, we know how much teenage boys love to eat. <laughs> I've seen the, the increase and in ex- how expensive the groceries are in particular. And, you know, everybody is, is having to make some tough decisions, and families should not have to be in this position uh, and forced to make these decisions between choosing medication or groceries or gas and electricity. Of course. You know, well, certainly not to the extent that we see today. You know, we say the same old things that, you know, what was once a donor to the food bank is now a client to the food bank. And who knows who is actually in the middle class any longer. But folks who were able to make ends meet in 2018, maybe not so much today. So the rally cry, generally speaking, will seem to be more money in people's pockets. But does that come in the form of newly created uh, special pots of money like we've seen federally and provincially throughout the course? the pandemic or what does it mean right so you know i i want to i want to let your listeners know patty that um there are things that the government can actually do the provincial government can actually do to help people right now and one of the things they can do is they can actually remove the provincial tax off home heating in fact you know some people might remember that once upon a time the past provincial government offered home heating and energy rebate of course that was only after the ndp had been calling for it for for years um however when the liberals came back into power in 2016 they canceled it and so you know they were trying to make up for some poor financial decisions by the previous uh, the previous conservative government by making people the province pay for their mistakes don't know what happened there. Obviously, that was a drop on her end. Unfortunate and loud. Uh, let's go to line number three. Susan, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. I'd like to tell you a feel-good story. 
story about a gentleman I had met in December of 2022. I was going into a store and the, the older gentleman was sat down with his cup out and I'd stopped to give him some money and um, had a little chat with him. Anyway, I was quick to turn around and I came back out of the store and I chatted with him again. And he said he was very cold and wanted uh, to go home. So I said, good night, Patty. I walked about five feet. Something struck me and I turned around and asked him, would you like a ride home? I've never, it's the first time I ever met the man. Anyway, so I, he got the car and off we went and I introduced myself and he told me his name and his situation and uh, why he does what he does. So, you know, he had a hard life. Um, his dad had just recently passed away and um, he was injured in a um, uh, on a side job, so he couldn't get workers' compensation. But he did tell me that the Newfoundland Housing had given him a room uh, with three other gentlemen and uh, that he makes $92 every two, or he gets $92 every two weeks from the government. And Patty, he said it wasn't enough to live on and that he does what he does um, just to survive. So that put a whole different perspective on me. When he got the car, he didn't smell, I didn't smell drugs or alcohol. And, uh, but a lovely chat we had. So I want, I guess... Just to let everybody know, not everybody is out there looking for money to buy things that we wish they wouldn't, but they're out there just to survive. Yeah, and I mean, those numbers are growing, too. You mentioned that he told you why he does what he does. What does that mean, and what did he say? No, no, about asking, like, with the cop out. And, um, you know, he, uh, he said it, it gives him enough money to get by and people offer him food from the local grocery store next door and um anyway uh and he you know he wasn't ashamed of what he did he was it was just what he had to do he had to put the cup out to survive and then patty so that was late december that was december 2022 and um i had a big uh parka uh, that I thought I'll bring in next time I come into St. John's. Anyway, I don't come in very often and when I did go in, he wasn't there. Anyway, I called the local store that I went into and asked, have you seen him? They have said, no, no, we haven't seen him in a long time. Anyway, I called back again and I found out he had passed away in February uh, or March of 2023. And I, I have to say, it's so funny how one person, I gave so much thought to him over that year that had passed. And be, it's just because he was so kind in his words. And um, I didn't feel sorry for him, but I just want everybody to know that, you know, put something in a cup and don't judge the person. And, you know, maybe there could be lots of Malcolms out there that are just trying to survive and the government gives them housing but uh, not enough to live on. It's a sad state of affairs. You know, if you can, please do, you know. Yeah. If you can help, 
please give us just an, an idea. Like, you know, sometimes if you want to be really sure that you are helping, you know, a sandwich might be an excellent idea. And I know people are concerned, maybe turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to folks who are panhandling, and some people would be automatically afraid of them, which I think is mm-hmm. going a little too far in the whole judgmental stereotype business. But I'm glad that interaction was positive, but I'm sorry to hear that you eventually found out he had passed. Uh, mm-hmm. Final thoughts to you, Susan, before I have to go. Okay, well, I just, um, uh, it was just one of those feel-good moments uh, in, a, in a, a long life for me. Uh, and I'm so glad that something stopped me and turned around and asked him if he'd like a ride home. And uh, it was right, it was the right thing for me to do. I appreciate the sentiment and the time, Susan. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Take good care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Well, we're after 12 o'clock, but apparently we're going to get a final thought from Kim Churchill, the NDP candidate, Conception Bay, East Bell Island. Kim, final thought to you. Hi, Patty. I just wanted to finish what I was saying uh, about the uh, the rebate. And uh, really, you know, the current rebate leaves out all of us who rely on other means to heat the homes. And as a quick and effective means of helping make ends meet, the Newfoundland Labrador NDP will pressure government to remove the provincial portion of HSC from all residential energy bills. So whether it's furnace, stove oil, electricity, firewood, propane, this will directly help vulnerable populations, especially the seniors who are on fixed income, but it's going to help everybody. And uh, the savings will appear on the bills that everyone will receive, and energy companies can then regularly invoice the province for the rebate amount. Um, so we are going to try to make this a permanent program so that families can count on it every single year when budgeting for their expenses. Final thoughts were yours. Kim, I appreciate your time. Good luck. Thank you so much, Patty. You have a wonderful afternoon. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Good show today. Uh, just a quick programming note. I will not be here tomorrow, but Linda Swain will be sitting in, so we will indeed pick up the conversation with Linda tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. Talk next week. Bye-bye.